Hey everybody, just a quick note. So uh, the episode that you're about to hear, I recorded over two days and uh, I know I get a little long-winded, but I had no idea just how long-winded I was going to get. So uh, I actually recorded the intro yesterday and I recorded uh, a little more than half of the episode yesterday. I just finished recording the uh, rest of the episode this morning. It's very long, so I'm going to break this up into two parts, but it's going to be a little different. It's going to be uh, part one. I'm going to release. I'm going to upload it today, which is Sunday. So you'll subscribers will get it later today and non-subscribers will have it uh, tomorrow, Monday. And I'm not waiting a week to um, upload part two. It's going to be uploaded uh, tomorrow. So uh, for subscribers, you'll have part one later today, Sunday. You'll have part two uh, tomorrow at some point, Monday. For non-subscribers, you'll get part one, Monday, part two, Tuesday. Uh, this is the story. This is my story of what happened to me 10 years ago. Uh, I go a little bit more in depth in the intro, so uh, I won't go into it again here. I just wanted to put this in uh, before the episode started because, like I said, I recorded the intro yesterday. I'm not going to go back and do it. So um, if you're interested in my story and you want to hear a firsthand account, fact is this is a very long uh, episode, why I had to break it up into two parts, and uh, I really left out a lot of stuff. Uh, a lot of ancillary stuff, I think, uh, in terms of the incident and in terms of the stuff with the courts, uh, the nuts and bolts are in there. So you'll get a good feel for it. Uh, I left out a lot of the other things or else it would have been a 10 hour episode. So uh, please do me a favor. Listen to part one today. Listen to part two tomorrow. Uh, definitely reach out. Let me know what you think. Uh, any comments, you know, hit me up on Twitter, any social media. Send me a text. Send me an email. Uh, I hope you people enjoy it. Have a great day. Nystrom, Nystrom's really getting some good right hands in. Gillies is down with Sandstrom. Somebody better help Sandstrom. Everyone must be held accountable for their actions. You cannot see your star carried out in a stretcher and do nothing about it. Oh my, did Mick plant one on C-card. Wow. You can't put a bounty on a man's head. I just did. The spinning, spinning, who's he going to go after? The puck drops and Bob Gardner goes right to King Flaxenfeld. But just a minute, Al Arbor has won four Stanley Cups, so don't start telling Al Arbor what to do, you and John Davison. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Coliseum Chronicles, the penalty box. I'm your host, Joe Lazito. So welcome to episode 47. Now, I know last week, if you listened to the season series episode with Brett Gallant, I had uh, I'd made some bold predictions about uh, this week's episode. And what I didn't do was look at the calendar. So, um... Everything I said last week, we're pushing off one week because um, in case you don't know, uh, this week, 
February 12th uh, is the anniversary of the day that my life was changed forever. And last year, I did an episode on that where I basically uh, went through the whole story. And I was going to just repost that audio file with a new intro and everything like that. But I just figured, you know what? Um, let me retell it. Uh, I think uh, I think the show has grown a little bit in the past year. Uh, the audience has grown a little bit in the past year. And, um, you know, I felt like um, to do that would kind of be mailing it in. So uh, what I'm going to do today, uh, episode 47, uh, it's, uh, it's sort of like the one from last year, just redone. But uh, it's going to be fresh. I'm going to I'm going to basically go through the entire story from start to finish. Um, but I'm going to record it, you know, a, a brand new episode. So it'll be very similar to the episode last year. I think it may sound better. Um, I know the one I recorded last year. I did. Uh, I did uh, after midnight. I had uh, I had some time to kill, so I recorded that, and uh, I was probably probably a little tired, I guess, but. Um, you know, so I'm going to, I'm just going to record this new fresh episode. Details will be the same, but, um, you know, it's been 10 years. So I'm recording this on, um, Saturday, February 6th, because I don't want to just drop this episode on the 12th and then drop a new episode, uh, two or three days later. So I want, I want to have this episode out there for, um, a few days. And to be honest with you, for me, for my personal psyche um you know the psychological aspect of everything uh for me this episode and i probably said it last year uh it's the most important episode i'll ever do because um you know like i said if you're familiar with the story you understand why i don't need to really go into details and and if you if you're not familiar with the story uh, i i encourage you to keep listening and you'll understand why i would call this uh my most important episode so uh we're going to get into that but first, as always, I have a few notes I'd like to uh, to read off to you uh, before we get going here. So, like I said, episode 47. I've done more than 47 episodes. For whatever reason, I, I did a few episodes in the beginning. Like, I believe the, the first, the day I died, uh, introduction, there's probably three or four episodes where I didn't designate a number. Uh, and then there were there are the two and three part episodes where I just kept the same episode number. Um, but I mean, although this is episode 47, I'm probably closer to 57 or 58 or whatever. So, uh, but we're, I'm, I've started it like this, even in future two or three part episodes, I'm just going to keep the same pattern. I don't want to, I don't want to disrupt anything. So we'll stick with, this is episode number 47 titled the day I died 10 years later. So, um, like I said, before we get into that, thank you very much for listening. Um, I had a conversation with, uh, Trevor Gillies, uh, not an episode, just a regular conversation. We were, we were talking and he was talking about the episodes that, uh, that he listened to. And it just, um, obviously if you, if you know me and, and you've listened to episodes or you just know me in person, you know how much I love Trevor Gillies. Um, Trevor Gillies is tied into this episode because, uh, I got to know him shortly after everything happened to me on the subway. and. I, I'm mentioning Trevor really for the simple reason that he was the last person I spoke to about 
my show. And when he told me he listened to episodes, I had the same reaction that I have when anyone tells me to listen to the show. It's just, it's, it's humbling. I know I say that all the time. And and I guess if you don't have a, a podcast, not that it's hard, Jesus, I have a headset and a, and a uh, laptop. Uh, if you don't have a podcast, if you don't do something, uh, let's say on the uh, creative side of anything, um, that's out there for people to uh, in intake or take in, I guess is probably what I should have said. But if you don't put something out there for public consumption, um, it's, it's hard to understand when someone says that they enjoy what you do, whether it's in this case, a podcast or um, in, in Trevor Gilly's case, his, his hockey, you know, um, if you're an artist and you paint or you draw or you're a musician uh, when someone actually says that they they listen to your work or they appreciate what you do, and it's something that comes from your heart, um, that's humbling. And I and I know I say humbling a ton, but it's true because you only get twenty four hours in a day, and you figure normally you're gonna, you know, let's say you take eight hours of that to sleep, so now you're down to sixteen hours. And everyone has real life, you know, everyone has their own life. So the fact that anyone would take any time out of their day to listen to uh, my show is truly humbling. And when Trevor was rattling off the episodes he listened to and some of the details of some of the episodes, I got goosebumps because, um, you know, like I said, it's always nice to know there's someone on the other end of this. Um, and again, I always say, I don't have, I don't have the numbers of the big boys. I probably don't do the numbers of the medium boys, but, uh, I love doing the show and, uh, I love the fact that, uh, there are people out there who take the time to listen to this. So, um, Thank you so much from the bottom of my heart. So if you're a returning listener, thank you. I must be doing something right that you come back even periodically, or if you come back every episode, you guys are amazing. Thank you. And if this is, uh, if this is your first time tuning in, I will tell you this episode is going to be a little different than what's normally here. Uh, but if uh, if you think I uh, I sound like I know what I'm talking about, which is what I usually say to people, uh, then maybe come back. But uh, thank you for tuning in no matter what, no matter what the reason you tuned in today. Thank you very much. Sit down, get comfortable, crack open a beer, a soda, milk, whatever it is that, uh, that you enjoy, uh, you know, just crack one of those open and get comfortable. Especially today, I have a pretty interesting story to tell you. Well, I think it's interesting. Um, but, uh, I guess that's for you to decide. So, uh, if you're a fan of the show and I said it again, I hate saying fan. I don't have fans. I have friends who listen to the show. So if you're a friend of the show, if you could please subscribe to the show, like, rate, and review the show, it helps me out. It helps the show out. Uh, it'll help grow the show. Like I said, um, I'm not a big show. I'm a small show, uh, but I'm bigger than I was a year ago, and that's thanks to uh, to you people out there, uh, you people that take the time to rate, review, subscribe. It's all because of you, and I appreciate that. And uh, so if we can get more people to do that, that would be great. I would uh, I'd appreciate that. Uh, I am a presence on social media, not a big presence at all, but a presence. I mean, everybody on social media is a presence. Uh, but if you're on Twitter, I have two Twitter accounts. I'd love for you to uh, follow my personal account at Joe underscore Lozito and at Kali Sinbin pod. So first the Kali Sinbin pod, that is strictly a Twitter for the show. That is strictly Islanders and Islander organizational enforcer news, pictures, stats, um, if you like the show, 
I would give it a follow because it sort of follows along the lines of the show. For instance, I've already posted today. I posted a picture of Zen and Kanopka, uh, pretty animated on the ice. Uh, also, I've been doing a uh, Bridgeport Sound Tigers uh, retrospective, I guess. Uh, I started uh, a couple of weeks ago, top 10 uh, fighting majors and uh top 10 fighting majors in the history of the franchise. Now I moved on to a season by season, uh, calling it physical presence, talking about the, uh, the main, uh, tough guys on the team. Again, it's, it's pretty much right. It pretty much runs parallel to the show. So if you enjoy the content on the show, you probably will enjoy the Kali Sinbin pod Twitter account, personal Twitter account. Uh, again, nothing real serious on there. Uh, mostly sports stuff. Occasionally I'll, I'll poke fun at the, uh, leadership in New York, uh, state, which has been, which has kept me out of work since May. I think they're incompetent idiots, but that's few and far between. I don't do politics. Uh, I don't really do too much real life on there. It's a lot of goofy shit. So if you need a break from reality or the reality that your social media feed has become, you can give me a follow. I will tell you, though, while I don't get serious on social media 99% of the time, I will on February 12th. That is the anniversary of the uh, incident that I'm going to go into further detail. Uh, one of the things I always do is uh, create this long thread. It's usually between, I'd say, probably 35 and 45 uh, tweets long. Uh, with with some details on everything, including pictures. So um, definitely, uh, the February twelfth is the one day a year I definitely do get a little more serious on my social media. So, uh, but give me a follow, I'll follow you back. Uh, that's uh, that's what I do. Facebook, facebook.com slash Coliseum Chronicles podcast. Again, similar content to the Kali Sinbin Pod Twitter feed, but you may be on one and not the other. And to complete the triangle. Instagram, Coliseum underscore Chronicles underscore podcast. Again, similar content to the Facebook page, similar content to the Twitter page. If you are on one, if you are on one or all three platforms, give me a follow, give me a like. I will return the favor in kind. Now, teespring.com slash stores slash Coliseum hyphen Chronicles hyphen merch. That is the page where you can find Coliseum Chronicles, the penalty box merchandise. And now you're panicking going, that was fucking long. I'm never going to remember that address. Don't worry. Don't worry at all. I got you. I got you. Scroll down to the the bottom of the episode description of the episode you are listening to right now. And there is a link, a direct link to bring you to the merchandise page. And you can order all sorts of stuff on there. T-shirts, hoodies, tank tops, leggings, socks, totes phone cases, masks. It's a, a plethora of Coliseum Chronicles, the penalty box merchandise. Everything there you could possibly need is on that page. You don't have to worry about writing down the web address. It's right there at the bottom of this episode description. Just click on the link and go go nuts. Now, I do a listener exclusive discount every week, and this week will be no different. This discount will take effect on February 8th. It will run seven days. And you will get 20% off everything in the store. Now, you may or may not know that uh, one of my inspirations is Mr. Donald S. Cherry. Don Cherry, his birthday was yesterday, February 5th. I believe he turned 87. 87 years of awesomeness. Now, here's the thing. Don Cherry was let go by his network. 
And the funniest thing happened. That network, the ratings for Hockey Night in Canada, went down the tubes after they let go of Don Cherry. Also, Don Cherry started his own podcast, which was the biggest podcast in 2020, the biggest new podcast in 2020, definitely in hockey, but I would say probably in the whole realm of podcasts. So it's weird how that happens. One goes in one direction, one goes in the other direction. And, and to be honest, I don't like the way everything went down on, uh, on his, with his network. But for a fan like myself and maybe you, it worked out for us because instead of getting Don Cherry for five to seven minutes every week, we get him for an hour or so on his podcast. And uh, personally, I can't get enough. So Don Cherry is a hero of mine. You may or may not like him, and that's fine. But uh, to me, he is the GOAT. And his birthday was yesterday. So this week, the listener exclusive discount code is GRAPES. G-R-A-P-E-S. Use code GRAPES on the website. 20% off everything in the Coliseum Chronicles, the Penalty Box merchandise store. And I am so proud. Not proud of the store. I'm proud of the merchandise. And the reason why I am is because of my logo, which I love. You've heard me talk about it a million times. Logo was done up by local Long Island artistic genius Joe Marisich. Joe Marisich is pretty amazing. I believe his hand was touched by God himself to give him all this talent. It's almost unfair. If you don't believe me, go to Graphics Joker on Twitter and look at some of this guy's stuff. It's amazing. I can't do it. Chances are you can't do it. And whenever I see something done by someone that I can't do, I just marvel at it. And it makes me happy that there are people out there with so much talent. And Joe is that guy with a drawing instrument, a painting instrument, whatever he does, he is really talented. So go to Graphics Joker on Twitter or loudegg.com. Reach out to Joe. He's available for hire. Dude, I'm telling you. He's awesome. My logo just scratches the surface of stuff that he can do. So definitely check Joe out. Now, we're at the point now where I talk about other podcasts that you should listen to. And take me at my word. You should. Because, first of all, if you like this show, you like Hockey Fights, you like the Islanders. And my show is basically targeted towards the Islander organization. I really don't feel the need to expand outside of that. And these next two shows are a big reason why. Fourth Line Voice podcast with my friend Darren up in Saskatoon. Uh, Darren is the one who started this. So if you think I suck, blame him. Um, one of the reasons why I decided to try my hand at this was I heard Darren do it. I've known Darren a long time. Um, so Darren has, uh, the most extensive catalog in terms of enforcer interviews. Uh, his latest episode was with a player called Devin Frankon. And I like the episode because there, every one of us, uh, Alec, Darren, and myself, we have guys on here that have achieved different levels of fame is the wrong word, but they've attained different levels of hockey. So different levels of notoriety, let's say. And, um, I, I knew the name. I knew Devin's name, but I didn't know a whole lot about him. And um, that episode really gave me a lot of information. And uh, it was a fun listen. So I would definitely take the time, listen to that episode. And um, Darren has two episodes a week. Uh, Wednesday are his interview episodes. And uh, Sundays are uh, what I told him to call Sunday shit shows. Because it's basically just him ranting. And... You might be thinking, well, I don't even know this guy. Why am I going to listen to an episode with just him? 
listen to them because they're actually he's usually spot on and they're actually pretty funny. So uh so I definitely would give that a chance go back and listen to the back catalog. Um when Darren plugs my show, he actually goes through the some of the list of guys that I have and one of these days I will return the favor and kind and just throw out some names. But I'm always hesitant to do that whether it's my show, his show, Alex's show because I feel like if I'm throwing out five names, there's 50 other guys who I didn't mention that are just equally as impressive, but mostly I think I forget to do it because I forget to do it. But Fourth Line Voice Podcast, give it a listen. Excellent stuff. Darren does a great job, especially those uh, Sunday episodes. Give it a try. Also, if you're on YouTube and who isn't, Fourth Line Voice YouTube page. If you have watched a hockey fight on YouTube in your life, chances are it was on the Fourth Line Voice YouTube channel. I think he's up to 2,300 hockey fights on that channel now. Uh, when I do research for my episodes, I find myself on there multiple times a day. So you will like it. You've been there. Just subscribe. You get notifications. You know you want to. Go do it after the show. Five for Fighting podcast. My friend Alec, who one day may be my neighbor. His uh, show originates from Tampa, Florida. Could be my neighbor one day. Uh, Alec is on a bit of a hiatus. Uh, he's been uh, very active on social media lately, especially yesterday. He got a uh, Bermuda Triangles, a Bermuda Triangle of uh, Chiefs jerseys from the Quebec Senior League. Very, very nice stuff. Glad to see he's back in it. Um, Alec is the host of the Five for Fighting podcast. Like I said, a bit of a hiatus. His last episode that he published was a couple months ago with noted minor league enforcer Frank Littlejohn. So uh, definitely take this opportunity while he is on hiatus to go back and check out his back catalog, and uh, I'm sure you will enjoy it. Alec also does uh, something that uh, the more I see it, the more I think he deserves a humanitarian award. He is the creator of the Enforcer Appreciation page on Facebook. Um, I am a moderator. I am. Uh, I I will apologize to Alec publicly. I do not do my job as a moderator because. Sometimes I read some of the stuff and I don't even know what to say, to be honest with you. See, the good part about the page is that there are very knowledgeable fans on there. There are. There are very knowledgeable fans. I mean, guys that know so much. The Another good part of the page, there's a ton of players on there. And let's be honest, you can listen to me talk about this all day long. But when you get something straight from the mouths of the players, that's the best thing. And these players on there, they're not shy. They talk about things. They open up about things. Um, Pat Barton is on there all the time talking about um, his journey, um, his his uh, struggle with anxiety and depression. Um, and, and he's doing an amazing job of really opening up about his personal battle. And I'm sure that there are so many people that are reading that that can relate to it. So is it crazy to say that Pat might be saving lives by sharing his story? I don't know. But he might be. I mean, he's really opening up. He's not holding anything back. Um, but there, like I said, Pat's great because he does that. He'll talk about his his actual fights. He'll talk about his playing time. But there's a ton of ex-players on there. But what happens is it also gives a platform for people who just, oh, God, it's social media, so I don't really need to go into it. But if you can wade through the nonsense, it's actually one of the best pages on Facebook. So please go and check out the Enforcer Appreciation page and um, 
I do subscribe. I guess you just like the page and then you get, it goes in your feed. It's definitely worth it. And Alec, God bless you. I honestly, God bless you for, for doing this. I would have bailed. Oh my God. So long ago. It's just, it's just crazy. But again, I'm sure Alec does it because of the, the passionate fight fans and the players. I mean, absolutely. It's, it's definitely worth it. It's worth it for me because I just really get to enjoy it. Um, but you know, thank you, Alec, for keeping that page going. And Alec also runs the QSPHL slash LNEH jersey and equipment page on Facebook, which has picked up a little steam lately, and I'm I'm glad to see it. So um join both of those. Uh Alec posted his uh his uh new haul of jerseys yesterday. So that was always nice to see. I love looking at that stuff. I've been watching um a lot of the uh QSPHL LNEH lately. Uh, when I'm working out, I'll throw a disc in or something. And uh, John Searson over in uh, in England, thank you, John, for sending me that uh, ton of QSPHL discs. Um, just catching up with it. Like I, I've said it in the past, uh, I, had no, I have nothing against the league. I had nothing against the league. The biggest issue I had with it was I had a shit ton of DVDs, but no lists. And you know the you know the bigger name guys, but there's so many guys on there that I don't know, and it would really help if I had lists, and I didn't, and that really was the biggest deterrent for me watching the watching the discs. And now that uh, I think the league's still in existence, but it's a fr- it's a fraction of what it used to be, so I don't even know what the, I think it's more of a, a regular league now. I don't even know how they draw, but uh, back in its heyday those games were crazy and my favorite part so far uh john sent me a, a bunch of joel terrio and uh steve Bosse and uh Moresti, uh, a bunch of guys and uh, my favorite part was uh on the games that were on uh, i guess rds i think as uh rds is the uh, uh quebec feed of tsn how great is there anything more QSPHL LNAH than Dave Marset interviewing guys in the penalty box right after a fight? That is so fucking awesome. I saw him do it with Joel Terrio, who I've said is uh, my favorite guy who, who um, is probably one of the bigger names in that league. Joel Terrio is my number one guy. Uh, and, and uh, also I saw him interview uh, Steve Bosse. When I saw that, it ju- I mean, it was just great. I mean, I had met Dave a few times when he was in the NHL and in the minors. Really, really personable guy, likable guy. Uh, and just <laughs> these guys are getting off the ice after a fight, and Dave Marset's in the penalty box talking to him. And, you know, you can do that with a Dave Marset. I can't do that. You can't put a stiff in there putting a microphone in these guys' faces after a fight. They're not going to want to be bothered. But you can do that with Dave Marsette. Everybody knows Dave Marsette, especially everyone that uh, all these fighters, and especially the guys in the Quebec League. I'm sure they all know Dave Marsette. But it was just it was just something that I thought was was phenomenal. Right after a fight, here's Dave Marsette in the penalty box. I don't know what any of them said, but um, it was it was just great. Uh, to me, that was just that was just great. There's nothing more QSPHL than Dave Marsette in the penalty box interviewing a guy after a fight. And I wonder, you know, I'd be interested to know, uh, and I know that Alex sometimes alludes to having a a, a bigger uh, QSPHL roundtable show or something like that. I, this is a question for those guys who, who are more passionate about it than I am. How many games did they put on RDS? Because you would think that it would be pretty popular. I would imagine the ratings would have to be pretty good because I know there are writers that will tell you till they're blue in the face that 
you know, fighting is bad, but you know who likes fighting? The customers. And um, I would think if you put that on TV up there, it would do pretty well. But I don't know. I'm uh, Alec and um, and Darren, do me a favor if, if you listen to this. I'm just curious if you guys ever do a roundtable. I'd love for you to bring that up. How many games were actually broadcast on TV? Because the majority of fights that I've seen on these DVDs are all uh, game tape stuff. So I'm just curious about that. But uh, check out Fourth Line Voice Podcast. Check out Five for Fighting Podcast. Check out Fourth Line Voice YouTube channel. Check out Enforcer Appreciation page and the QSPHL LNAH jersey and equipment page on Facebook. Do it again after this show. Now, as I alluded to, one day Alec and I could possibly be neighbors. Why is that? I live in New York. He lives in Florida. Well, there is a better than good chance. I'm talking to you now. It is February 6th. You are probably listening to this on February 7th, February 8th. Uh, There is a very good chance that approximately six months from now my family will be in florida because uh new york is a shit show uh ruined by our leadership and again i'm using air quotes which you can't see uh but the politicians here have their heads up their asses uh mainly the governor and the mayor of new york city so new york city is shut down my industry is shut down i see absolutely no end in sight to this debacle and Unemployment just isn't enough. And uh, so we're looking at other options. And uh, Florida is where we have uh, really targeted. We've targeted an area, pretty much the area between Tampa and Sarasota, with an outside shot of extending that down towards Fort Myers. But I would think we're probably looking at Tampa and Sarasota. So if you are down there or have friends that are down there or know people that are down there that own a business or work anywhere and might be looking for work from a hardworking guy who's been around the block a few times that is not against putting in an honest day's work and doesn't expect anything for free, please let them know that you know someone who might be looking for a job. And by might, I mean definitely uh, around July, August because I will definitely need a job to go down there. And um, so the only job, well, let me start out by saying this. I don't need to love the job. I just can't hate it. And there is a difference. I can't get out of bed every morning wanting to jump off the roof because I have to go to work. I I can't hate my job. I just don't have to love it. I've had jobs that I love. I love my current job. Um, Actually, you know, I love my job here at Lincoln Center. Uh, I loved my job at the garden. I really loved my job at Fleer. I loved when I worked for Bruce Bennett. Fleer is the job that I wish that I could have done for the rest of my life. I, I really do. I used to tell people that at the job and they thought I was crazy. Now it wasn't really the people on the production end in terms of like, I was a photo editor photo, you know, pick the photos for the cards. That's a fun job. I mean, there's a lot more responsibility to it, but that was the the nuts and bolts of the job. And, you know, like my buddies, Mike and Don, they, they, did the the stats in the back of the card and wrote the copy. I mean, those, that's the fun part of the job. Uh, but there were people that had regular positions in the company that were similar to regular positions in any company. So to them, there really wasn't any sort of fun aspect to it. But for me, that's the job. And if I, I would have loved to have kept that job the rest of my life, that would have been amazing. Uh, but again, you know, people at the top, you know, they're not as smart as they think they are, I guess, sometimes. And they jeopardize the lives of, all the employees with their stupid decisions. But I digress. Again, anyone in the 
vicinity between Tampa and Sarasota, if you are aware of any job openings, please let me know. Please let them know that um, you might know someone looking for a job down there, but no sales. I cannot do sales. I cannot cold call people. I cannot go door to door. Um, I can't do it. I can't. I, I'd like to think I'm very personable, but that is not in my personality. I just cannot do anything where it's a commission-based job or if I have to sell it. I just, I can't do sales. So anything other than that, please put in a good word for me, okay? We all know that. If you're listening, chances are you got your job uh, because someone helped you get it. So uh, that's just the way the world is. So I can use any help that anyone can give me. So now... We're almost done here. Um, Islanders didn't play this week. COVID hit the Buffalo Sabres. I think they got it from the Devils. So they had two games canceled. They're actually come. They're coming back tonight uh, against Pittsburgh. So hopefully no one gets COVID between now, this morning, and tonight. And uh, actually have uh, Islanders to watch. Um, Bridgeport Sound Tigers, they started yesterday. Uh, three to one loss to Providence. So I watched the game. and. Um, I mean, I don't want to say uninspired game. Let's just say it looked like the first game played by guys who haven't played in nine months or or whatever it is. Um, you know, normally you guys, you know, players have the exhibition games to get the rust off and compete and everything like that. But it wasn't a bad game. I mean, it wasn't sloppy. It just at, at times it didn't look very inspired. So, uh, but I'm looking forward to it this year. The good thing about Bridgeport, similar to the Islanders, where they keep uh, they keep the uh, cupboard stocked with toughness, whether they play or not is a different story. Uh, Bridgeport has three guys. If you are listening to this and you are not a, a big American Hockey League fan, but you want to kind of follow Bridgeport a little bit, Bridgeport has three guys who can uh, drop them. Two of them have been guests on the show already. One, uh, the biggest name in terms of the enforcer role would be Yannick Turcott, no doubt. Please go back and listen to my episode with Yannick. That he's just a kid. Unfortunately, he's a guy that Gillies and I were talking about. Um, he's probably born 20, 30 years too late. He would have fit in perfectly uh during the heyday. He has the right attitude, he has the right spirit. And I defy you, I defy you to go back and listen to my episode with Yannick Turcott and not love this kid. He, he, just his exuberance, his enthusiasm, it's infectious. He has a passion for hockey. He has a passion for the job. I defy you to not love that kid after you listen to the episode. Uh, but he's on Bridgeport. He's a legitimate heavyweight in that league. He loves to fight. He'll take on anybody. He doesn't care. Um, He will probably play the least out of the three guys because I think he is the most raw in terms of talent. He's definitely the youngest. He's the youngest of the three. Um, another guy who I had on the show, great, great guy, Mike Cornell, physical defenseman. Um, I said on Twitter yesterday, I think I'd rather get hit by an 18 wheeler than take an open ice hit from Mike. Um, great guy, great guy, veteran leader. Um, listen to that episode too. I think you'll get a good feel for the the kind of player that Mike is. And, uh, the captain of the team is Seth Helgeson. So he's going to play. I mean, Seth will probably play every game. Um, I wish all these guys would play every game. Uh, Seth will play every game, I would imagine, especially it's a 24 game season. They play Providence 12 times. They play Hartford 12 times. So what I'm hoping is the game start to get a little chippy and then, uh, Yannick will see more time. Mike's in a weird spot because Mike can play, Mike can play a regular shift in the American league. It, it, I mean, let's just, if you've never seen him play, trust me, he could 
take a regular shift down there, no questions asked. But what happened is now Worcester, the Islanders East Coast League affiliate, they uh, decided they're not going to play this year. So you have extra guys now that are on Bridgeport. So they had a bunch of scratches yesterday, maybe 10 guys that were scratched, and you're going to have that every night. And a guy like Mike is in a precarious position because he can play. He's he can, he's a top six defenseman in the American League. If you've never seen him play, just take my word for it. He's a top six defenseman. But he's in the secondary group in the fact that the parent club, the Islanders, are going to want Brent Thompson to play the guy signed to the Islanders, the guys on two-way deals with the Islanders because they're going to want to develop their prospects. Then you have guys like Mike. And got, so you have other you have the other group, which are guys signed strictly to Bridgeport or guys on two-way deals between Bridgeport and Worcester. And actually, I'm not sure if all the Worcester contracts were void with them opting out. So it could just be guys signed to Bridgeport. But you get my point. It's basically guys that are signed to two-way deals with the Islanders and guys not signed to the Islanders. The Islanders are going to want Bridgeport to play these guys that are under contract to them. And unfortunately, Mike is not one of those guys. Yannick is not one of those guys. I believe Seth is. I believe so. He might not be, but he is the captain. So Seth Helgeson is going to play. The shame of it is, it, it, it's not a shame. It's a, what do you call it? A catch 22. So Mike Cornell can play in this league, but he's got to be below the Islander guys on the depth chart. It, to me, it's Bridgeport's loss. Um, I understand the main goal of the league is to develop prospects. I, I get that. But I also get that you need some character guys at this sport. You need guys who've been through the wars. You need leaders out there. And obviously they have, you know, Helgeson is a leader. He's the captain. They have alternate captains. But Mike is a leader. And I think, you know, I hope he gets into some games this year. I really do. I'd love to see him and Seth back there, you know, banging bodies, bringing that old school mentality. And, of course, I want to see Yannick get into some games. So um, I bought the AHL package. It's pretty reasonable. You get every game for like 45 bucks. And uh, so I'll probably, I'll definitely watch all the Bridgeport games. I'll probably tune into some Cleveland games to watch Brett Gallant. I have to check the other rosters to see uh, see who else is down there. But um, hopefully, if you if you pay attention to Bridgeport, uh, guys like Cornell and and uh, Yannick will get into some games. And like I said, I would imagine Helgeson's going to play all the time. But it's good to see they have these guys there. I got to find a way to get into a game somehow. I don't know, but uh, I'd love to get up to Bridgeport and just sneak in, watch a game somehow. Probably shouldn't be saying that, but I'd love to get up there because especially if we move, you know, in the summer, um, it's obviously it's going to be tough to get to games in Bridgeport. And I don't know where the closest American League team is to Sarasota or Tampa. So it could be, uh, and who knows if they'd even go down there, if the Tigers would even go down there. So, I gotta find a way to finagle myself into a game down there. I don't know. So, uh, but anyway, first game for Bridgeport, three to one loss. But uh, you know, uh, I think it's Bobo Carpenter. I think it's Bobby Carpenter's son. He looked pretty good. And the team looked fine. It just it was the it was the first game after a long layoff for both teams. So take that for what it is. So I mentioned last episode we're gonna do a new a new um, feature on the show, and that is the. 2021 Islanders fight report. I'm going to expand that to the 2021 Islanders slash Bridgeport Sound Tigers fight report. So what I'm going to do every week, we're going to go over the fights that happened this past week. And uh, here's the report for this week. 
so obviously I'm having fun with the fact that uh, after a couple of weeks of the Islander season and one game of Bridgeport, the organization has zero fights total. Uh, if you watch hockey now, you know that uh, there's not going to be a ton of fights this year. There's not going to be a ton of fights ever again. Uh, I just have fun with it. Uh, I don't blame the players. Although I would like to see them get a little more aggressive. Again, we're talking about double-edged sword here. Um, guys, you just can't do what you did in the past. And the Islanders have been lethargic the last few games. I would like to see a little excitement, just a little more sandpaper, a little more aggress uh, aggression. Now, Ross Johnson has been a scratch uh, the last few games. And uh, Matt Martin's been, been in there. And uh, Scotty Mayfield's been in there. I, I think the issue, there's so many issues with it that, um, you know, these guys are always, I don't want to say on the bubble, and I think Matt Martin's roster spot is secure. I think Scott Mayfield's roster spot is secure. But you don't want to be that guy that goes in and just grabs a guy and uh, beat the bag off him, and then you get 5-10 in a game, and the other team scores a couple of goals on a power play. I, again, it, it's it's such a different game than it used to be. Don't get me wrong. There there have been a few Islander games this year where I just want someone, someone to go in there and just grab someone because they're, they're just, you know, it, it, just watching these games sometimes, just, they need something. And it's not that they're sleepwalking. I see the effort is there. Just things are not going their way at times. And at the times when things aren't going their way, generally the other team is scoring. As opposed to when things aren't going the other team's way, the Islanders don't capitalize. And I think there there is something to be said for one of these guys to just go and grab a guy. And I always key on Johnston and Martin and Mayfield, but it might be – it'll be different if it's someone not one of those three guys. Uh, Anders Lee is not above fighting. I mean, listen, he's Tom Wilson's favorite guy to fight on the team, even though he's got, uh, other guys he could fight. Obviously Tom Wilson loves fighting guys like Anders Lee. Um, Anders Lee is a great captain. He'll go in, he'll grab a guy. He'll, he'll take care of business, whether he wins or loses, doesn't matter. But there are times where I wonder if it wouldn't be, you know, um, if it wouldn't be beneficial for someone other than the, the usual suspects to just kind of go in and grab someone and just do it. I mean, it definitely would catch the whole team by surprise and maybe give them a little bit of a jump. Um, you know, Anders Lee, not known for fighting, but he'll do it. Casey Sezik is not known for fighting, but he'll do it. Um, uh, and then you have the usual guys. Obviously, they're known for having fighting on their resume. Maybe if someone else goes and does it, like it just even if it's the kind of thing where you're frustrated, and you just go in and grab a guy, take five minutes, take the other guy over for five minutes, maybe you jumpstart the team. They've had plenty of opportunities to do that so far, and, and by they, I mean the Islanders. Like I said yesterday, Bridgeport's first game was a close game throughout. Helgeson, you know, he's got to pick his spots, I guess, and and what I need to do really is, um, is go over the Providence and Hartford rosters because I don't know who they have. Nobody stood out yesterday. Uh, no names jumped out at me for Providence, so I don't even know if they have anyone that, that fights at all. Um, but going back to the Islanders, uh, they, they have had opportunities this year where I think a fight would have done them, done them good. So hopefully next week's episode, I will have a different Islanders slash sound tigers fight report. That's the fight report for this week. That's the fight report for this whole season. Um, obviously fighting is just one aspect of the game, but it's something I focus on, on this show. So that's why. I bring you the fight report, and that's why the fight report 
is what it is this week, and hopefully that changes. But I tried to inject a little humor into it. I hope if any of the guys are listening, you don't take it personally. Um, everybody that knows me knows that uh, I have the utmost respect for the guys that do it, and uh, I love the guys who do it for this organization. So uh, it was just something very tongue-in-cheek. It was a joke. I hope you took it that way. But on the other hand, I hope next week I have uh, have at least one fight to talk about between the two teams. So, um, so that is the first official installment of the 2021 Islanders slash Sound Tigers fight report. So we're going to move on to the episode now. Um, I'm not going to go into too much of a preamble because once I do, then I'm going to, it'll actually be the start of the episode. It's hard for me to talk about what the episode's going to be without talking about what the episode's going to be. So um, I guess this is the time where maybe you want to go get a drink and uh, just listen to my tale. Uh, it's um, I, I post my, my bio on my social media is just a regular guy with one good story. And if I didn't have this story to tell, I have no good stories. Uh, like I always say, I'm just a regular guy, uh, a regular Joe, a ham and egger, uh, use all the adjectives and descriptions you want for just a guy who just plugs away, um, goes to work, supports his family, uh, family man, all that other stuff. I, I really, there is nothing phenomenal about me. There is nothing exceptional about me. Uh, and that's fine. I'm totally okay with that. I just, uh, I'm just a regular guy who was thrust into the news uh, 10 years ago, February 12th, 2011. And this is that story. I'm calling this episode the day I died 10 years later. And I've often referred to February 12th, 2011 as the day I died. But for clarification, no, I did not technically flatline. Uh, I barely lost consciousness at all. I lost consciousness for a few seconds, I would think. Uh, I don't know exactly how many for sure, but I would say less than 10 seconds. Uh, so even though I'm, I'm calling it the day I died and I've referred to it as the day I died, that's more metaphorically than uh, reality. I did not flatline. I did technically not die. Uh, like I said, I'm using it more as a metaphor than anything else. So I wanted to get that out of the way. Uh, I'm in no way saying that I legitimately passed away and have come back. So I just wanted to clear that up right away. Um, so in order to tell you about February 12th, I need to tell you about February 11th. And in reality, my February 11th actually began on February 2nd. So if we're going to take this chronologically, let's go back to February 2nd. And I'm going somewhere with this, so just bear with me. On February 2nd, the Islanders played a game in Pittsburgh, February 2nd, 2011. The Islanders played a game in Pittsburgh. Uh, and for the most part, it was just your typical game, okay? Then I believe everything happened in the third period, and that changed everything. Um, the first thing that happened was Max Talbot uh, just hit Blake Como from behind, a dirty hit, hit from behind, uh, put Como out, concussion all that jazz, uh, really dirty, disgusting hit. Uh, believe it or not, though, not penalized on the play. You know, for for 
Islander fans, like we always kind of talk about how the Rangers get away with everything and how the league wants the Rangers to win and all this other stuff. You know, you talk about big city stuff. It's good for the league to have New York, all this other stuff. And we talk about Toronto also. And I, and I do think there's something to that. But I will say Pittsburgh generally it just seemed that way. Got a lot of breaks. And it didn't have to be big, massive monster breaks. But in a case like this, that is a disgusting, dirty hit, and it was obvious to everybody that it was dirty, except for the officials. Talbot did not get a penalty on the play. That was uh, the first thing uh, about that game. Then later in the game, uh, Matt Cook skates down towards Rick DiPietro, and you know Rick DiPietro, he was a little feisty. I mean, he's not not Billy Smith, he's not Ron Hextall. But I think he liked mixing it up a little bit. I think he liked getting involved a little bit. Uh, certainly was big enough. That that dude, uh, I, I saw him in the locker room a bunch of times. That guy's put together. I mean, I will give him that. He is he's a pretty big dude. And um, I don't know if he was baiting Matt Cook. Not that Matt Cook needs to be baited. But he, um, he kind of skated to the edge of the net, maybe a, a foot or two outside the um, post. Uh, didn't get out of the way when Matt Cook was uh, was coming in, and uh, although you know again Cook could have could have skated outside of Di Pietro absolutely, but he didn't. But again, I think Rick is is culpable in that also. But I think he meant to be. Um, and Cook hit Di Pietro. A scrum ensued behind the net, and then the next thing you know, uh, you got Brent Johnson skating towards his blue line. Yeah, Rick DiPietro noticing that, skating towards his blue line. All of a sudden, Johnson's in the Islander end. They drop the gloves. Uh, one punch, Johnson breaks uh, Ricky's orbital bone. He's out for a while. Now, obviously, if you're listening to this and you've been in any sort of fight, you know that any fight, you're sort of assuming the risk. You could get hurt in a fight. You could die in a fight. And by Rick dropping the gloves and accepting this challenge, he assumed the risk and uh and he got hurt okay and i i think that uh nobody's going to be happy when one of their teammates get hurt uh, but I, I think it's an accepted part of the job and again it's not a goalie's job but i think in the heat of the battle uh you do things that otherwise you wouldn't normally do and johnson challenged him and and ricky accepted the challenge i'm calling him ricky like we're friends di pietro accepted the challenge and and he took the brunt of it and it could have ended there but it didn't. Uh, the cameras followed Brent Johnson to the bench, and the bench was was pumped. I mean, listen, I have no issue with the Penguins bench being excited. They have no idea uh, the extent of DiPietro's industry, industries, Vandalay Industries, DiPietro's injuries. And I will say this about Brent Johnson. After he connected with that punch and he ended up on top of DiPietro, I think he got a sense that, that – DiPietro was hurt because you could see him kind of pat him on the belly and just almost look like, are you okay? Genuine concern for him. I will, I will say that about Brent Johnson. And I think if you go back and watch the video, you'll see what I see. Um, so this really isn't about Brent Johnson outside of that punch. It's really more about their bench and their bench was excited. And again, I hold no ill will towards an excited bench after a big win in a fight. But even as a fan, I kind of got, uh, I got it pissed off it was it rubbed me the wrong way seeing mark andre fleury and his big smile and uh, that was all the splattered across the tv i'm sure it was splattered across the jumbotron in the arena and uh, i obviously 
wasn't the only one who noticed it, but it was just something about it that really rubbed me the wrong way. And, um, you know, the one good thing about hockey, especially hockey back then, and even in the decades prior to that, uh, you were able to get retribution and you're, it was frontier justice. And that is one of the beautiful things about how the sport used to be. And uh, right now, if uh, any of uh, these writers or bloggers that don't like fighting are listening, they're gasped and they're, they've clenched their soy milk saying, Oh my God, what a barbarian this guy is. Listen, it's, it's one of the beautiful things about hockey. Uh, you, you can, you actually get the opportunity to hold your opponent accountable. And it's, it's one of the beautiful things about life, except obviously there are laws you can't break in life. And if you do, there's, then you're held accountable. But in sports, in hockey, when your opponent does something untoward, you can have your retribution. You can handle it. Like I said, frontier justice. Now, this was towards the end of the game. Uh, game's over. That's fine. And like I said, the beautiful thing about the sport of hockey, was beautiful. one of the beautiful things about hockey, what it used to have is the accountability thing. So that was February 2nd, 2011. And if you looked at the schedule, lo and behold, the Penguins were coming to town on February 11th. 2011. Now, I am just an old school hockey fan, but after that game, I looked at the schedule to see when are they playing Pittsburgh again. Now, if I did that, I know I'm not alone. And uh, when I saw that it was February 11th, I was pretty pumped. It was only nine days away. So sometimes you have to wait, especially if it's an opponent that you don't play a lot. You got to wait months, maybe even have to wait to the following season. Divisional opponent, you had to wait nine days. And the funny thing is they played a bunch of games in between. And as the host of this show, I want to make a pledge to everybody out there listening, to you people, this is my pledge to you. Um, obviously, if you're an Islanders fan, <clears throat> excuse me, you know about the revenge game. And that's the game I'm going to discuss. Um, not so much in detail here. Uh, that is something I will discuss at length with certain people. but. Um, if you're an Islanders fan, you watch that game, you know, Trevor Gillies was a big part of it. You know, Zen and Kanaka was a big part of it. You know, Matt Martin was a big part of it. Uh, Michael Haley. I am going to do my best before I retire the show, which hopefully isn't for years, but I'm going to do my best to get those four guys on the show. And I really want, obviously I want them on the show because of their careers. Um, all four of those guys have had pretty amazing careers. And the fact that two of them are actually still playing on NHL rosters in 2021 really is a credit to those guys. Um, and I would want to have all of them on if it wasn't for this revenge game, but I want to have them on to discuss this at length. And that is my pledge to you as friends of the Coliseum Chronicles, the Penalty Box Podcast. I will do everything within my power to get each of those guys on this show. Now, Matt Martin, he's going to, he might be tough maybe after he retires, which I hope isn't for years. I want that kid to play as long as he can. Uh, I've known Matt for 10 years and I hope that when it, I, there's no chance, I haven't even asked him because I know the answer. There is no chance Matt Martin will do my show 
while he is playing for the Islanders, probably while he's playing. I can't imagine that Matt Martin is going to do a show focused on fighting while he's an Islander with Lou Lamarillo as the GM. Lou Lamarillo has his hand on the pulse of everything. And as I've said before, that's the good thing about Lou Lamarillo, but for someone like myself, that's also a negative. But you take the you take the bad with the good, and having Lou here, there's much more good than bad. But I know I won't even ask Matt Martin until he's retired if he'll do the show. Um, but that is my pledge to you people. I will try to get all four of those guys on the show. And obviously, in an interview, you've heard my interviews before. They're very in-depth. I will do the deep dive into their revenge game. But now going forward, so that first game was February 2nd, 2011. Now we move forward, fast forward to February 11th, 2011. And this is where you ever watch a movie or a documentary where simultaneous things are going on just in different places and they converge. So this is that part of the story. So for myself, now it's February 11th. I cannot wait for this game. I must have been either I was off from work or a lot of times at my job, uh, the Philharmonic has matinees on Fridays. They'll have an 11 a.m. show. They'll have a 2 p.m. show. So either I was off or they must have had a matinee. I don't remember that part because I was home to watch this game. I did not want to miss this game and because you just had a feeling. And so many times, if, if you've been a fan long enough and you, you kind of watch these revenge games, you're let down. They don't live up to the hype. Well... Fortunately, this one not only lived up to the hype, it blew the hype into another atmosphere. But like I said, I don't remember if I was off on February 11th or if we had a matinee and I was just home in time to watch the game. But it's available on YouTube. The entire game, I believe, is available on YouTube. The fights are available on YouTube. Um, I'm not going to go into the details too much because I do hope to get into the details of the game. Like I said, at whatever point I get those four guys on the show. What I will say is uh, that game was an unbelievable game from start to finish. Uh, The Islanders got their revenge with their gloves on and with their gloves off. Uh, I believe they scored nine goals. Um, It was a carousel of goalies going back and forth between Brent Johnson and uh, Chuckles, Marc-Andre Fleury. And um, they just, (laughs) I mean, just go back and watch the video if you forget or if you've never seen it before. Uh, one of, listen, this is a team I've been alive. I'm older than the Islanders. Now, obviously, when the games were going on the first few years, I was a kid. I didn't watch the games. Uh, my first memories of the Islanders are probably when I'm six or seven years old. You know, you're talking like 76, 77, 78. So I haven't seen every Islander game. But I've fortunately been alive for all the Cups. I've been alive for the playoff series. I've had many proud moments as an Islander fan. The ones that I always talk about, uh, I talk about the playoff brawl with the Rangers when uh, James Patrick cheap-shotted Patty LaFontaine and you had Bomber and Mick Lakota uh, doing their thing, uh, the way that they stood up for Patty. That was uh, a highlight from uh, from my Islander fandom. And this game... um, this Pittsburgh revenge game, one of the times I'm most proud of being an Islander fan, watching this group of guys uh, come together like that. Um, it's They were brothers, and I'll, I'll get into that a little bit later. But this game was unbelievable. So 
definitely go back. I, I, like I said, when I get these guys on, I'm going to go through the list of everything that happened. I don't want to get into that now because this really isn't what the episode's about. But to sum it up, they beat the shit out of the Penguins with their gloves off. They beat the shit out of their out of the Penguins with their gloves on. And it was, oh my God, I get goosebumps talking about it. I have goosebumps right now. It's the kind of game that when you watch it, when it's over, you're still amped like you could move a house if you had to with your bare hands. And the game, so I was living in Philadelphia, so I didn't have all the post-game stuff here in New York. So I had like NHL Network and things like that. But I'm wired now. I'm amped. I don't want to go to sleep. So I'm up. Probably I'm up till 2 in the morning maybe, a little after 2. Um, I go to bed. You know I'm not going to sleep right away. It was uh, it was just that much fun. And now all I'm thinking about is I want to get to work because I want to talk about this game. Now, you might be thinking that I work with hockey fans. Not really. Not really. Not, not uh, rabid hockey fans. I work with casual hockey fans who probably didn't even watch the game. They may know about what happened if they saw it on the highlights, but it doesn't matter. I want to get there because I want to talk to people or maybe better yet at people because I just want to talk about this game. So now I'm already thinking about the next day. I'm in bed wide awake, uh, you know, just, I want to get there and I want to talk to people about the game. That's how amped up I am about this. Now, another interesting tidbit to the story. Uh, I was originally scheduled to work. Um, I'm going to say, I don't know my exact schedule, but let's just say for argument's sake, I was scheduled uh, 12.45 to 8.45 on that Saturday. I was definitely not opening that day. And one of my coworkers had to uh, go either look at a school or uh, talk to teachers. It was a middle school, I believe. Whatever it was, she had a meeting to go look at the school. And she was scheduled to work at 9.30. And the meeting was early, so she couldn't work. So she asked me if I would swap shifts. So I said, sure, no problem. So uh, I went from being scheduled, let's just say 12.30, 12.45, back, well, not back, I was never scheduled, but from 12.45 to 9.30, which actually becomes a key piece to this story. So I'm probably, now I'm commuting from Philadelphia, so I'm probably going on four hours sleep, but it doesn't matter. When I get up, I'm not groggy. I'm dude, I'm still on a high from the night before with this Islanders game. I am, uh, I can't wait, you know, jump in my, jump in the shower, get out, get dressed, jump in the truck, drive to New Jersey, get, get my papers, Philadelphia daily news, New York post, jump on the train in New Jersey, take the train, to Penn station. It just doesn't matter. I, yeah, I guess physically I'm tired, but I'm still on adrenaline, I guess, because of the game. It was, uh, it was that kind of game. So uh, it didn't really matter that I didn't work with real rabbit hockey fans. It didn't really matter that I hadn't slept um, too much the night before. I just wanted to get up, get out, and get in front of people so I can talk at them, basically, which is what I'm doing right now, I guess. So I guess it was preordained. Um, but something else was going on on February 11th, 2011, that I had no idea about. And there was a young lad from the Ukraine who had uh, come to America. And the funniest part about this story is especially because uh, 
illegal aliens are such a hot button issue in the in the country now and for the last few years um he actually he actually got naturalized naturalized that's the funniest thing to me it's the one thing i chuckle about out of all the shit that this guy did to people he actually got naturalized when he came to america it's just he, he became a citizen that's so fucking funny to me um but in brooklyn in the early morning of february 11th uh a killing spree began. So uh, I'm not going to not say his name because generally when I tell the story uh, about what happened on the subway, I say a guy or a gentleman or whatever it is. But it's 10 years old. Everybody that's familiar with the story knows this guy's name. So instead of kind of beating around the bush, I'm just going to say it. So uh, February 11, 2011, Maxim Gelman um, wanted to use the mom's car his mother's car, which I believe was a Lexus. And, uh, his mom said, no, uh, she didn't want him to use the car and he didn't like that. And the uh, stepfather intervened and, uh, Gelman didn't like that either. And they ended up fighting and, uh, Maxim Gelman ended up stabbing his father, stepfather, uh, upwards of 55 times. And, what makes it even more gruesome is not that he stabbed his stepfather 55 times is that during the middle of the bludgeoning, whatever he was stabbing him with first actually broke and he grabbed an eight inch knife and he finished the job with that. Now I don't know at what point the first instrument of death broke for all I know, this guy could have been dead, but it broke and he grabbed this eight inch knife that would become a big part of his story and a part of my story. And he finished the job. He stabbed this, like I said, stabbed his stepfather upwards of 55 times. Obviously nobody is going to survive that. And his stepfather did not survive that. And now he's on the run and he has the Lexus apparently. So, um, I guess he got his way, right. You know, with the petulant children, if they have a temper tantrum, they sometimes get their way. And obviously this went way beyond the temper tantrum, but he got his way. So now he has the car and this is from what I've been told and from what has been put in the news and take that with a grain of salt. And of course I'll explain that later too. Um, he was going to flee the area and he actually did was on his way outside of New York. And for some reason, and the, uh, I guess the, decided upon uh rationale for him coming back based on other people. Obviously, I don't know. I'm just going by what other people said is that now it was time to settle some scores. And he turned around, he came back into New York. There was a, uh, a girl, young girl named Yelena Polchenko, who I guess at times ran in the same circles with Max. I don't think they were close friends, but it's, it's high school or what that age. And you know, you're parts of different cliques or whatever. So they knew each other. Uh, the extent of their friendship, I don't know. And I don't know anyone that knows them. I, I say that's not true. Um, but I don't know anyone that knows them well enough to ask. And again, it's not any of my business. They were obviously acquaintances. Um, and I know that there was uh, a desire on his part to take the relationship to the next level, something that she was not interested in. And actually at this time, she did have a boyfriend. Uh, but I guess, um, you know, he couldn't handle that. And actually on the documentary, uh, 
the documentary that I, I put on my social media, on my Twitter every day, um, apparently, and again, I don't know this for a fact. I don't really want to know. I don't want to verify it with my own eyes. Uh, I guess in one of uh, Gelman's first experiences with a lady, he ended up getting some sort of disease on his junk. And uh, I guess he was insecure about that. Again, I don't know. That is strictly hearsay from someone that knows him. And um, I, I have no reason to doubt it. But again, I don't I don't know for sure. I, I've never looked at his tool. Don't want to look at his tool. But apparently uh, that sort of derailed certain things for him. But again, um, Elena had no desire to take their relationship to the next level. And I guess when you snap like he did that morning, all reasonable thought goes out the window. But I guess he wanted to go to Yelena's house and I guess, I don't know, confront her. Whatever a psycho killer does, that's what he wanted to do. But when he got there, uh, Yelena wasn't home, but her mother Anna was. And um, it's funny. In another documentary that I'll never promote because it basically is a infomercial for the uh, NYPD. Uh, well, the NYPD that day, which is total horse shit, um, they actually interview him and he talks about how uh, Yelena's mom wouldn't give up her location. And it's almost like he was impressed by her not giving up her, her daughter. Like he wants to be a gangster in the worst way. And I, he tries to come across that way. And um, I think anyone uh, that has kids would not give up th where their child is. Even if you have a maniac right in front of your face, you're not giving up where your kids are. There's nobody that's going to do that. If you're, if you're a loving parent, you're never going to put your children in any sort of danger. So it is admirable what Anna Bolchenko did. And I'm sure she doesn't give a rat's ass whether he is respect, he respects it or not. But he, she, uh, she did not give up where Yelena was and he ended up killing uh, Mrs. Bolchenko. So that was uh, his second murder that day. So I guess now he's driving around Brooklyn trying to find Yelena, driving around. He's just doing different things. I don't know. Again, I can't put myself in the mind of a spree killer. I don't know what you do uh, with your time. But all again, all this is happening on February 11th. And um, at some point, I guess uh, word of, of Yelena's mom uh, got around and I, I guess it got back to Yelena. I think it got back to Yelena. I think she had heard about a, an incident. I don't know to what extent. And again, I, this, I don't know for sure. This is just stuff that you read. And she made her way back home and found her mother who of course was brutally murdered. Uh, what she also found was Maxim Gelman and he basically stabbed her to death, murdered her in front of her house to the point where he almost decapitated her. I mean, what do you say to this? Like, I'm, I'm telling you these details, and it's a story that I've told a million times in the last two years, and I still get the same sick feelings in the pit of my stomach as I, I talk about this stuff. And I don't even know these people. You know, I, I don't know them. But, I, I, you know, like I said, I've told this story a million times and it just, it doesn't get any easier. And you still, I still get the same disgusted feelings in, in, in my body through, from head to toe. Um, it's just disgusting. So, unfortunately, Yelena was his third victim that day. Now, 
word I think is getting around. The police are after him and he's on the run and he's, you know, in and out of uh, Brooklyn, I guess, but I think mostly in Brooklyn. And I guess he's, I don't know, car runs out of gas. He doesn't get gas. He's carjacking people throughout the day, overnight, whatever. At some point during the day, um, he just plows over, uh, I think his name was Steven Tannenbaum, uh, just a guy crossing the street, a guy who got up that day, planned on living his life and uh, gets mowed down by a car. And uh, I think when the uh, authorities got there around where uh, Mr. Tannenbaum was found, they didn't find any sort of skid marks or anything like that. So he didn't even apply the brake. He just plowed over this guy and, you know, uh, human versus car at that high rate of speed, human is going to lose every time. And it's just a question of to what degree is the loss. And uh, unfortunately for Mr. Tannenbaum, he paid the ultimate price. So now the death toll is up to four. And I guess overnight he is, um, you know, again, is up to his old shenanigans. He's, he's carjacking people. He's doing this. He's doing that. Uh, carjacks a guy, ends up slicing him, I think, in the hand a few times. And the guy calls the police. They find his car. It's near, um, uh, I guess, the L, the L train. Uh, I don't know if it. I don't know if it's the L or if it's just an elevated train. My knowledge of the um, transit system in New York is very limited, so I don't want to say it was the L train for sure, but I think it was an elevated train. So they know he's somewhere in Brooklyn or in one of the boroughs. He, he's not getting very far. And on the morning of February 12th, uh, a woman is at the 96th Street subway station, and she's reading the newspaper, and a gentleman comes up to her while she's reading it and says, do you see what they're writing about me? It's all bullshit. Uh, could be paraphrasing. That's just what, what I read. Swipes the paper out of her hand. She looks, and it's Maxim Gelman, the guy she's reading about. So thankfully, he doesn't do anything to her. She survives. She goes up to street level. She calls the police. She says, hey, um, I was just confronted by Maxim Gelman. I'm at the 96th Street Station. So now the APB goes out. It's just like on TV. They they send hundreds and hundreds of uniformed cops, uh, plain clothes, whatever it is, down into the bowels of New York City to try to find this guy because now they know he could be in the subway system, in the tunnels, on a train, wherever. So you put the whole force down there. You show the mugshot. You say, hey, you know this guy, the guy that's killed killed four people yesterday. We got a sighting on him. Now we're going to catch him. We have him narrowed down to this area. We know he's in the area. We're going to send the army of police out there. So that's what happens on February 12th. Maxim Gelman is now in the New York City subway system. The NYPD in mass is now in the New York City subway system. And a ham and egger that lives in Philadelphia, just going to work, is in the New York City subway system. As I said, I got uh, I drove to New Jersey, uh, Hamilton Station, and got on the New Jersey Transit. I took the New Jersey Transit to Penn Station, and that's where... I get my subway to work. If you are not familiar with the subways in New York, and I'm really not, I only know the ones that I take on a regular basis. There's so many subways I don't know anything about, but I will tell you this. 
At Penn Station, you can access six subways, the one, the two, and the three, and the A, the C, and the E. The one, the two, and the three is down on the 7th Avenue side, and the A, the C, and the E is down on the 8th Avenue side. The one is a local train. That is the route that takes me to my job. The one is a local train making all stops. The two and the three train are express trains. They run, it runs on the same line, but those are express. So they don't make as many stops. My station is 66th street, Lincoln center. The only train that stops at 66th street is the one train, the local. If I take the two and the three, I have to either get off a stop early or stop late and walk. And I've done that plenty of times, but on this day, I get to Penn Station, and now there's construction on the tracks. So there are signs posted on the platform for the one train that all trains, the one, the two, and the three are running express. So it doesn't matter which train you get on that day. They're all express trains. There's no uptown train stopping at 66th Street. I have to take, and actually I'm wrong, I couldn't get off at 59th Street on the, the two or the three. I don't believe so. Um, no, I definitely couldn't. The, uh, if I took the two or the three, I had to get off at 72nd street, which is the stop after my job. So that day it was, you had three choices. You could take the one, the two or the three, but your only choice was you have to get off at 72nd street and walk six blocks, seven blocks, whatever it is to, I have to walk to my job. So the way that it's situated, I'm on this platform for the one train. The only train that's going to stop on that platform that day is the one train, but again, it's running express. The other platform, the next platform over is the platform for the two and the three. So it is a, it is one platform, but double the trains run on that platform. So it had happened prior to this day and it has happened since this day. The I never, ever left the platform for the one. I always just stayed there. This day, though, again, I want to get to work. I want to talk about this game. And like I said, I'm talking about the game to people who just don't give a shit. That's the whole funny part. I want to get to work as soon as possible. So in my head, I did the math. If I stay on the platform for the one, one train's going to come by here. And if I go to the other platform, the two or the three, the two or the three is going to come there. So double the trains, stop at the other platform. Chances are, if you play the odds, a train's going to go to that platform before this platform. So what did I do? I went to the other platform. And as I said, never before and never since would I leave the one platform. This day in the 11 years I have worked at Lincoln Center was the only day that I ever left the platform for the one and went to the other platform for the two and the three. And this is where the story gets a little more interesting. So now I'm on the platform for the two and the three train. And as I said, this train, all the trains that day, all the uptown subways were running express. So uh, it was a conscious decision on my part to leave the platform for the one and get on the platform for the two and the three train. So as I suspected, the first train to show up that day was the three train showed up before the two and it showed up before the one. So in terms of the first train showing up, 
my intuition was correct that three showed up first. So I was right about one thing that day. And basically when uh, a subway shows up, if you're familiar with subways in New York, you know the drill. If you're not, uh, basically the subway pulls up, the doors open. Uh, if you have any sort of manners or courtesy, you let the people get off first. Then you go on a couple seconds later, the doors close and you're on the move. In this case, doors opened Saturday morning train wasn't too busy. So, you know, maybe a couple of people got off. I don't remember, but the door opened. I got on and I sat in the first seat. So when you see a train, uh, you know, a uh, train or a subway, the entirety of the train is called the consist. So whether a train has 10 cars, 12 cars, uh, however many cars it has, that's called the consist. So I went in the first car of the consist and that's where the motorman is. And the motorman is stationed in the front of the first car, small, small booth. There's room for a couple of people in there, but, uh, he's not lounging around or anything in there. He has a seat. I believe that he sits in or he stands up while he's uh, moving the train and he's in that booth and he's separate from the rest of the people separated by a wall and a steel door with the window. What separated the engineer or the motorman and myself was the wall. Uh, where I sat that day was essentially right behind the motorman again with the wall between us. I went in the first, uh, first car, first seat and the door stayed open for a little bit. And again, you know, keep in mind when you get on the subway here in New York, you're, you're on, you get on the doors closed pretty quickly. They're not open that long. It, you know, even for the Long Island railroad or Jersey transit, the doors stay open a little longer. The subways, the doors close relatively quickly. So when I say that the doors were open a little longer than normal, it wasn't like they were open for 10 minutes, but they were open a little, little longer than normal. And the next thing I know, two uniformed armed police officers get on the train. Now, as I've said in every interview that I've done, 99% uh, of the time when I've been on the train with law enforcement, they've stayed in the car with the public. They're going station to station, so there's no reason for them to be in with the motorman or anything like that unless they have business up there. Uh, this day, they got in the front car. They went right in with the motorman, which, again, it, on the surface, it's no big deal. They could have been in there for a particular reason. I don't know. But they it wasn't that they got on and stayed in the car for a second and then went in. They got on with – they specifically went in to be with the motorman. So – Again, at the time, didn't seem, you know, it wasn't anything, you know, strange about that, so to speak. So finally, the doors close, and now we're moving, but we're crawling. And the subway is no different than a train or a car or a plane where you start, start off slowly and then you pick up speed. But we weren't picking up any speed. We were literally crawling, and we're crawling, and we're crawling. That was the first red flag because it, you normally don't go that slow. And uh, I didn't know what was going on. And the next thing I know, um, a gentleman comes up to the door that leads into the motorman and starts banging on the door. And he says, let me in. Now, the voice on the other side of the door, which this gentleman, who, again, I already let the cat out of the bag. This is Maxim Gelman. Now, I don't know who this is, though. At the time, 
I have no idea who this guy is. He's just this dirtbag that's banging on the door trying to get the attention of the mortarman. So now, of course, I know it's Maxim Gelman, but instead of me saying a gentleman this, this guy, that guy, I'm just going to say it's Maxim Gelman. But again, keep in mind, very important to the story, I have no idea who this guy is at the time. So he says, let me in. Now, the voice on the other side of the door, who Maxim Gelman thinks is the motorman, is actually the male officer. Now, what I neglected to tell you by accident was when the two officers got on the train, it was a male officer and a female officer. The male officer was a big dude, bigger than me. Um, and I'm 6'2", and I weigh pounds. So this guy was a big dude. And, um, you know, I don't know, by all appearances, you figure a guy that size, guy with a gun, guy with a nightstick, a guy with mace, probably handle himself pretty good, you know, especially when you have all those advantages. Got on, you know, the female officer, average size, um, you know, regular size lady, I guess. And um, they got right on and they got in, in with the, the motorman. So... Maxim Gelman, when he bangs on the door, he doesn't know that he's speaking to the police. He thinks he's speaking to the motorman. He has no idea the police are on the other side. What you should know, and like I said earlier, once that lady called the police when she saw Maxim Gelman at 96th Street, every police officer down in the subway was there for one reason. They were there to apprehend Maxim Gelman. So, while I don't think everything you see on TV and everything you see in movies about law enforcement is accurate, I mean, obviously, listen, we've all seen the movie where the uh, super detective is like the best shot ever and he can shoot a gun out of someone's hand or whatever, just as pinpoint accuracy. And that's pure fiction. Um, but what is accurate is when police are given the uh, mugshot. And this isn't the 70s where everyone huddles up in the headquarters and you get the paper mugshots. I mean, I would imagine. At this stage of the game, in 2011, uh, they would just send the mugshot to your phone, and you'd have access to that. So I want you to keep in mind, and it's a very important part of the story, every single police officer in the New York City subway system on the morning of February 12, 2011, was there to apprehend Maxim Gelman, Officer Terrence Howell. Officer Tamara Taylor are two of the officers that were in the subway system to arrest Maxim Gelman. Those are the officers that were in with the motorman. So as I said, Maxim Gelman goes to the door, bangs on the door and says, let me in. The voice behind the door, which Gelman thinks is the motorman, but is actually Terrence Howell, says, who are you? Maxim Gelman says, I'm the police. Terrence Howell says, you're not the police. And oddly enough, and it's even more odd when I, I get to the to the bottom of the story, he, Gelman walks away without incident. It was really weird. He walks away and he goes and sits down on one of the seats. Now, once he sat down, there was a woman next to him. She got right up and walked into the next car. So the whole situation played out right in front of me because, like I said, I was behind the motorman and the door was right in front of me to my right. So everything happened right in front of me. I heard the conversation verbatim. I heard both voices. And I knew that Gelman was talking to the police officer. Gelman didn't know he was talking to the police officer. But here's the key thing. There's a window in the door. And it's a two-way window. You can see out on either side. 
So while Gelman didn't know he was speaking to a police officer, you can bet your ass that Terrence Howell knew exactly who he was speaking to. And who was he speaking to? The guy in the mugshot, who he was on the train to arrest. That's right. But Terrence Howell, nor Tamara Taylor, does not come out of the motorman's compartment. While they're not coming out of the motorman's compartment, when Maxim Gelman walked away from the door, there was a gentleman to my left. He was standing next to me. Once Gelman left the area, this guy bolted to the door. Now, he's banging on the door, but he's not like Gelman. Gelman was actually calm, collected. This guy's in a panic because everybody on the subway car that day, more than likely, including this gentleman, knew exactly who Maxim Gelman was. Everybody except me that was. I had no idea. The Maxim Gelman killing spree had not reached the news down in Philadelphia yet, or, or if it had, had not reached the papers at least because the uh, edition of the New York Post that early in the day had nothing in it. You know, it's a super early edition. And it hadn't reached the Philadelphia news cycle yet, so it wasn't in the daily news. So I'm going in blind. So I would venture to say that any native New Yorker, anyone staying in New York at the time, knew exactly who that was. The guy next to me knew exactly who Maxim Gelman was. He goes to the door. He's banging on the door. He wants the police to come out. Why does he want the police to come out? Well, there's a spree killer on the train, and he is in danger. So he's banging on the door, tapping on the window, looking over his shoulder, trying to get the cop's attention to come out because the spree killer there on the train to arrest is on the train. So he he was in the optimal position because he was close to the door and Gelman had walked away. But now Gelman gets up and starts walking back towards the door. And with that, the second gentleman walks back towards me. And he's standing to my left. And now I'm sitting here going, what the fuck is going on? Because now, again, this is all playing out right in front of me. And I'm sitting here going, I don't know what the fuck is happening here. And next thing I know, Maxim Gelman stops about three feet from the door and about two feet from me. He looks down at me. I look up at him. He reaches into the back of his jacket, takes out uh, the eight-inch knife, which... At the time, I didn't know the history behind it. I later found out it's the knife that he used to finish off his stepfather, the knife he used to kill uh, Anna Bolchenko, and the knife he used to kill Yelena Bolchenko. It's also the knife he used to assault, I believe, at least two other people. He takes out the knife, looks down at me and says, you're going to die, you're going to die, plunges it right into my face, right under my left eye, into my left cheek. So now... I mean, I, I have to stop for a second. I'm actually just getting goosebumps here. It's just, it's weird to say it, you know, and it's weird in a way because when I do interviews and I'm speaking to someone, it's sort of a give and take conversation. And here I am now and I'm, I'm talking to you, but right now I'm actually just speaking to nobody as I record this. So it's a very weird sensation that I go through sometimes when I tell the story, I kind of, I don't know if it's the adrenaline that gets going in me or whatever, but, uh, it's just a weird, a weird dynamic. Uh, you know, some of I've changed a little bit since the incident. I mean, I think that's understandable. I think a lot of people would have, but so he plunges a knife into my face and now 
I, I, you know, again, people have asked me what, what was going through your mind and, uh, what, it, what, you know, what did you think of and what was, what was next? And the God's honest truth is I honestly didn't have time to think. Uh, I, I think basically it was instinctive. I knew if I didn't fight back, I was done. You know, this guy just stabbed me in the face, a guy I'd never met before. I'd never seen before. And he just stabbed me in the face. And I guess, like I said, it was instinct. If, if I don't fight back, he's going to kill me. And if I do fight back, he still may kill me, but at least I have a chance here. And, you know, I say it a lot and I always wonder if people get sick of hearing it. Cause I, I guess if you, if you say it enough to enough people, it may start to sound hokey. Um, but it's the God's honest truth. Um, I fought for my family that day. Um, if you know me, even a little bit, you know that I really don't give a fuck about most things in life. Uh, I care about my wife. I care about my children. Um, you know, my, my immediate family, my, you know, my mom, my, my sister, my mother-in-law, everybody on, on my sister's side, my close friends. I mean, those are the people that I care about. Um, that day it was, I gotta, I gotta get off this train. I gotta see my wife. I gotta see my kids. It's the God's honest truth. And, um, whether it sounds hokey or not, you know, or it sounds sort of like a Hallmark movie moment, whatever. It's the truth. That's the only thing I, I, that I was on my mind that day was was getting off the train and being with my family. So he stabs me in the face. As he recoils his arm back to stab me again, I decide, and again, I say decide, I, I, there's really no thought process other than defend myself. But I tried to go for a single leg takedown. Now, Single leg takedown is a wrestling move, not like WWE wrestling. It's, uh, I guess, uh, Greco-Roman or freestyle wrestling move where it's it's pretty self-explanatory. You go for the leg, you try to get the guy down. And and I say a single leg takedown because it was the closest thing to me. His, he had one leg, you know, the way he was standing. I said, I'm going to try to get him at the leg and take him down. I guess, you know, honestly, there wasn't time to form a game plan. And what I did, though, because at that point, I had exactly zero hours of training in any sort of mixed martial arts or wrestling or any self-defense. I had zero minutes of training. I have said over and over again, I honestly believe that that to do that instinctive was basically in my head via osmosis. Because while I had no training, I had been watching mixed martial arts for a very long time since UFC 1. Thank you, Dean Ewan, for calling me the day before and letting me know that this tournament was going on. So, uh, I am forever grateful to Dean for many reasons. Um, I'm very fortunate that he is my best friend and basically he is my brother and, uh, I am very fortunate to have him in my life. And that is one thing I will always say. I heard about, uh, UFC from him. He called me the day before UFC one and said, Hey, have you heard about this tournament, but that's where it started for me. So, and I, I, you know, I've been rabid about it or had been rabid about it for many years after that. So, um, that's the only thing I can think of. I never wrestled in high school, never wrestled in college, uh, never trained in anything. So the only logical explanation is it was just instinct from watching the hours upon hours that I had put in watching MMA. And because I watched a lot of it, it doesn't necessarily translate because again, I had zero minutes of training. So while I went for a single leg takedown, it actually ended up being more like a football tackle. So I shot in too high and I ended up wrapping my arms around his waist, which 
got the job done. I mean, I was able to take him down. I mean, this is a guy that was all lit up on, I don't know how many different kinds of drugs, wasn't feeling any pain. Guy was basically a robot at this point. Um, I was able to take him down. So that was the good news. The bad news was I basically tucked my head into his abdomen or whatever, and he had free reign at my head with the knife. And um, that's when he ended up stabbing me uh, three times in the head, once on the uh, right side of my head and twice in the back. And these were the most damaging wounds. And uh, I know, thankfully, uh, Andrea went out uh, for a bit here and because uh, she doesn't like when I talk about this part. But um, I never felt the knife. I, I will say that. I had so much adrenaline flowing through me, I never felt the knife. But what I do remember is the pressure. And I remember the knife you know, slicing me open and going in my head. And um, I remember him grunting. Every time he would put the knife and I'll try to hold this close to the microphone, it was like, <clears throat> as he's, as he's doing that with the knife. And I, I heard that, but again, it's at that point, it's just like the most animal version of yourself fighting another animal. I mean, there's really no other way to describe it, but he's stabbing me in the head and, um, I'm taking him down. So fortunately I was able to take him down. But like I said, this guy is on uh, all kinds of shit. And believe it or not, I'm on top of him. He still has the knife, did not lose control of the knife at all. So now I'm in dominant position. He's on his back. I'm on top of him and I'm trying to grab his arm to get the knife away from him, but he's still flailing wildly. And, uh, the first time he, he slices up or flails at me with the knife, I try to catch his wrist. I miss and he slices me in my left thumb, basically, uh, the webbing where your thumb meets your hand. The second time he uh, flailed up at me with the knife, I tried to catch his wrist and I missed and he caught me in the left tricep. Finally, on the third attempt, I was able to catch his wrist. I slammed his hand down and the knife came out. And um, that is when I got the tap on the shoulder from Officer Terrence Howell telling me that I could get up now that they got him. Now, <clears throat> excuse me. I want you to keep in mind, at this point, I'd lost a lot of blood. And the blood was just pouring out of me. Basically, uh, I know I say basically a lot. I have to really make a jar or something. And every time I say basically put money in it and then give it to charity. Um, <clears throat> the What I've told people is if you want to know how the blood was pouring out of me, next time you take a shower, uh, put your back to the shower head. And let the water hit you where your uh, neck meets your shoulders and have the water flow uh, across your chest. And that's basically how the blood was pouring out of me that day. But uh, I got the tap on the shoulder. Uh, the cops finally came out of the motorman's booth after the threat was no longer there. I got up and I sat on the uh, subway seat. So now I'm watching everything go down. And like Gelman wasn't going to go easy and he's squirming. And like I said, Howell's a big dude, but even he was having a hard time, uh, you know, putting the handcuffs on him. And I don't think he used actual handcuffs. I think he used zip ties, if I'm not mistaken. Now, what became even more apparent and was just how useless Tamara Taylor was in the whole thing. So here you are, you see your partner trying to handcuff a perp on the floor. He's a big guy. He still can't like corral him in a way to get these 
get these handcuffs, zip ties, whatever it was on him. And you don't think to get down on your knees and help him. Instead, what you do is you stand over the situation and ask your partner, should I mace him? Now, I'm assuming that you learn about mace, I don't know what, the third day of the academy maybe, and uh, you know, excuse me, you would know that if you spray mace in an enclosed environment, like a closed subway car with no ventilation, the mace is just going to stay there. It has nowhere to go. Maybe she was out that day. I don't know. But that was her contribution. Well, she did have one other contribution uh, later on, which I'll tell you about. But for the most part, in terms of the apprehension of Maxim Gelman, that was her contribution. Standing over her partner while he was trying to handcuff this idiot did nothing. Finally, a man who I later found out his name was Alfred Douglas went over to Officer Howell and helped get this guy under control. So now the scene is me on the subway seat, bleeding profusely. Um, Terrence Howell holding down Maxim Gelman, trying to keep him under control. And many people that started out in that car at the beginning of the ride are now either in the next car looking through the window or in the very back of the car. And I don't, there have been different people have said different things to me. I do not blame any single person on that subway car that day for not helping me at all, except for the two people that were on there to do their jobs that were armed that had guns. Any civilian that was on that subway, I listen, I can't even imagine. Obviously, I can tell you firsthand what it was like, but I can't tell you what it would be like to witness something like that happening in front of you, especially if you're not thinking about it. You're not prepared for it. I, I, I don't hold any ill will towards anybody that was on the subway that day other than the two cops. You know, you're just a civilian going from place to place and this guy starts stabbing another guy and there's blood everywhere. I, I, I don't know. I, like I said, I don't, there have been people that disagreed with me, but I, I still, that's how I feel. No ill will towards any of the civilians that day on the subway car at all. Now, uh, we're stopped. I, I, we're stopped in the tunnel. Now the, uh, the time it takes to get from Penn station where I got on to the next station, which is 42nd street is less than a minute. But when everything went down, someone pulled the emergency brake. And now we are stuck in the tunnel and we're not moving. And I'm bleeding. And I'm bleeding a lot. And we're not moving at all. The subway is at a complete stop. Now what happens is from the back of the subway, more cops get on and more cops get on and more cops get on. And at some point, there's probably anywhere from seven, eight, to 10 cops on there all in the area by Maxim Gelman. There was one cop. And I will say, if you saw the picture of me where I'm kind of in the middle of the frame and they're put, they're about to put me in the ambulance. There is, um, there's a, uh, a cop to my left in the photo, but to the right in the photo, uh, it looks like older than a lot of the other cops, you know, maybe he wasn't older. He had gray hair or whatever. That was the only cop during the whole incident that came up to me of his own accord and just, you know, whatever told me, hang in there, whatever it was, just 
you know, two seconds, just basically acknowledge the fact that there's a guy on this train that's probably going to die. And he took it upon himself to, like I said, it's not that he sat with me or whatever, but, you know, just kind of acknowledged me, which, you know, could he have done more? They all could have done more, but out of everyone that was on the train that day, I, I will acknowledge he's the only one that really acknowledged me. Now, I did have small conversations with uh, two other cops as they were walking back and forth because they're all focused on Maxim Gelman, which obviously he should be a focus. Uh, nobody cared that there was a guy bleeding to death. Nobody. They walked by me like I wasn't even there. And there were twice, there was two incidents where I, again, my head is down. I'm, I'm just, I'm like a stuck pig and there's blood everywhere. And I grab one of their wrists or their jacket or whatever. And I go, Hey, do you have a, are you married? Yeah. I'm like, I'm married too. I, I got to get out of here. I'm bleeding. I need help. I got to see my wife. Yeah. Yeah. Don't worry. Don't worry. We're going to get you there. We're going to, we're going to get you there. Okay, fine. A couple of more minutes pass. Same thing. Ask one of the cops, Hey, do you have kids? Yeah, I got kids. I'm like, yeah, so do I, you know, I got two kids. And, uh, <sighs> 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 sorry about that. <clears throat> I got two kids. I got to get off this train. And, uh, cop says, don't worry about it. Uh, we got the paramedics. They're coming from the back. You see the way we got on uh, from the back of the train. <clears throat> the paramedics are coming that way. They should be here anytime now. Okay. And why isn't the train moving? Well, when we found out that he was on the tracks, we stopped the train. We had to cut the electricity because... There were cops on the tracks, so we had to cut the electricity. Well, okay, but now this is several minutes later. You, the electricity's cut. The cops have to be off the tracks now. You got word to everybody that you got this guy. Let's get the electricity turned back on so we can move. But again, no worries because I was just told with a straight face that the paramedics are on their way. So just keep an eye out, look towards the back. That's where they're coming from. Now I mentioned Alfred Douglas. The reason why I know Alfred Douglas's name is because at a certain point, Alfred Douglas started yelling and not yelling. I mean, he was forceful. I don't want to say yelling. He wasn't being an asshole about anything, but he was basically asking all the other passengers on the train. Hey, you, this guy's bleeding to death. Are you all ready to watch him die? Nobody's going to help this guy. And, uh, with that, he takes his hand and he places it over my deepest wound. And, uh, you know, what I always say is uh, Alfred doesn't know me from Adam. He doesn't know me from anybody. And he doesn't know if I have, so if I have AIDS or I have any other disease that's transmitted by blood, doesn't know it. And I guess at that point doesn't care. And he places his hand over my deepest wound, his bare hand. And, you know, I'm bleeding from six other places. 
but this was the biggest one. If I was going to die, it was probably going to be because of this one, because I actually felt the blood, even though by the time I could see it, it was just sort of oozing on me and gushing. I could actually feel it going like when my heart was beating. And I don't know what Alfred's looking at. Like I, I often neglect to acknowledge this, but the guy's basically saving my life. He's putting his hand over my deepest wound. And I don't know what he sees because I, I can't, I don't know if my brain works that way because I can't fathom what this guy is looking at. And he was, he held, a, held his hand on my, uh, on my wound for oh, a few seconds. And a woman came up with, uh, I guess, paper towels or tissues, napkins or something. And I was appreciative of that, but honestly, he probably had it on the wound for five seconds. And I would imagine the whole thing got saturated with blood. Now I'm still waiting. And I, I and I'm just saying, you know, just talk to me, please don't let me die. Just talk to me. And, and he was, you know, an angel literally, you know, that day. And, um, now my focus is on watching for these paramedics, watching for the, the cavalry to come here and help me out. And then the train starts moving. And with whatever energy I had left, I'm like, whoa, whoa, wh wh what about the paramedics? I thought the paramedics were coming. And I'm told the paramedics are waiting for me at 42nd Street. So that was a line of bullshit that I was told. And the paramedics were already at 42nd Street. They had cleared the station. The only people on the platform were the paramedics and maybe a few other cops. So it, it was still a bit of relief. Obviously, we were moving. And like I said, it's less than a minute from Penn Station to 42nd Street. So we had already maybe made half the journey. I knew we were on our way there. So we pull into uh, 42nd Street. I look. There's the paramedics. The door is open. They come on. The uh, cops get uh, Gelman off. Now the paramedics are attending to me. One thing I'd like to tell you people is if you read any articles, you've, you've, heard, you've read the names Terrence Howell and you've read the names Tamara Taylor. You also read the name Marcelo Razo. Now, Marcelo Razo was given credit for being an off-duty cop that helped Terrence Howell apprehend Maxim Gelman. I saw Marcelo Razo's picture, and I would like to state this for the record. The next time I am on a subway with Marcelo Razo will be the first time I am on the subway with Marcelo Razo. I don't know where Marcelo Razo was that day. He could have been on the subway. I can tell you where he wasn't. He wasn't in that first car, and he did not help anybody. So I don't know if this was a case of they owed him one, but Marcelo Razo was not on the train that day. But the official police statement was that he was. I was on the train that day. Marcelo Razo was not on the train that day. So anyway. They get Gelman off the train. Now the paramedics are lifting me up off the subway seat and they're putting me on the stretcher. And as they lift me up and are putting me down on the stretcher, I pass out. But I don't pass out and lose co complete consciousness. I pass out and I, I've, uh, 
equated it to when you're on the sofa watching TV and you start to nod off and you're, you're at that part of the sleep where you're starting to fall asleep, but you can still hear everything that's going on around you. That's basically where I was because right behind me, right behind the stretcher was officer Tamara Taylor. Now, what I'd like to tell you is something that again, gives me goosebumps. At the time, I didn't know what it meant. Tamara Taylor is talking to another cop and they're talking about me. And in her conversation, Tamara Taylor calls me likely. Don't know what it means. No idea. But I heard her say it. I remember it. And I guess I stored it in the memory banks. Then I wake up. And. Wow. This is the first time that I felt any pain any semblance of pain. And friends, I will tell you this. It was the absolute most agonizing pain I have ever been in, in my life. It is uh, the fact that the pain itself didn't make me lose consciousness is amazing. It it was just, uh, it was the most intense pain I have ever felt. I've dropped weights on my feet. I broke three toes once. I dropped a plate on my foot and I broke the three middle toes. Didn't even phase me. Again, not not that I'm Superman, but I'm just being honest. I mean, I, I knew I did something and it blew up like a balloon, but I stuck my foot in a bucket of ice and watched <laughs> 11 hours of football that day. It was the last week of the season and the Bills weren't making the playoffs, but that day I broke three toes didn't go to the hospital till probably 11 o'clock at night. And this happened in the morning. And I'm not saying that, saying I'm tough. I'm not. But if you're a guy and you're a football fan, if you're a Bills fan, this was the uh, last game of the season. I forget the year they were playing Cincinnati. And it was sort of like the um, the tryout for Takeo Spikes. He was going to be a free agent. The Bills were interested. And uh, it was the Bills-Bengals game. It was It was the last game of the year before he signed with them that summer or the postseason, whenever it was that he signed. And they weren't making the playoffs. I didn't want to miss the game. So uh, it's not that I'm saying I'm tough. I'm not. I just, it was the last week of football. The Bills weren't making the playoffs, and I just wanted to watch football all day. So I got home, and I stuck my foot in ice, and it basically went numb for hours. That wasn't even, that was a, a fraction, a sand, a grain of sand on the beach of pain compared to that day. So all the while that this stuff's going on, I got adrenaline just coursing through my veins. I don't feel anything. Like I said, when he was stabbing me in the head, I feel the pressure. I hear him grunt. I don't feel anything except the pressure. When I'm getting sliced in the face and then the knuckle and on my tricep and and my thumb, I don't feel anything. Then I pass out and I wake up and I guess that was the adrenaline dump. And oh my God. It uh, basically, uh, there I go again, basically, it's like someone doused my head in gasoline and lit the match. Uh, Excruciating. On one hand, I think I was happy because I was feeling pain. It meant I was still alive. But on the other hand, fuck, was I feeling pain? It hurt. So uh, I wake up. I felt bad for the guys um, who had to carry me up the stairs. 
I was uh, a few of the cops and the paramedics are carrying me up the stairs. And we get to street level. By the way, unbelievable fact. Everybody is connected to their phone. Everybody's connected to their camera. A homeless guy could be taking a shit on the street and there'll be 10 people filming it. Not a single person that day filmed anything. There's no footage of this from anyone's cell phone. Unbelievable. It's, it's just, this didn't happen in 1985. It happened 10 years ago. Nobody thought to film it. And again, I, you know, they were probably nervous. I, I, I get it. The, the first time people took pictures or anything was when I got to street level. And what greeted me on street level is probably the dumbest cop ever. Um, as I said, every cop that day knew who they were there to arrest. Maxim Gelman. Every cop got a mugshot. I go to street level. The cop asks the other cops, is that the perp or the Vic? Well, first of all, dummy, I'm covered in blood which I guess I could still be a perp in some situations. I'm covered in blood. Second of all, did you hear about the killing spree that happened the day before? His mugshot was everywhere. Did you hear about that? I'm not the perp, stupid. I'm the victim. And I don't like using that term, but because he said, is that the perp or the vic? To answer his question, I'm the vic, dummy. Okay? They get me in the ambulance and I am uh, probably talking a mile a minute because in my head, I figured if I keep talking and keep talking, well, I can't die, obviously, because I'm talking. Again, it makes no sense. But I I was telling the paramedic, please, just similar to what I told Alfred, just please talk to me. I don't want to die. I want to stay alive. Just talk to me. Talk to me. And uh, he was great. He was awesome. The guy driving the ambulance was great. Thankfully, it was a Saturday morning. God, if this happened during rush hour during the week, either rush hour. I mean, honestly, it's New York City. If it happened at 1030 in the morning, I probably would have been in dire straits. But um happened early in the morning on a Saturday. That really helped me out. I asked the uh, paramedic, I said, hey, do you have anything in here to help me with this pain? And he gave a very logical argument. Well, we can't keep painkillers in the ambulance. They wouldn't last too long. And when you think about it, of course, that makes sense. They would not be there that long. But he reassured me. He goes, listen, I can't imagine the pain that you're in, but just so you know, they are expecting you at the hospital. They'll be ready for you as soon as we get you off this ambulance. They have the morphine ready to go. And uh, he kept his word. As I, we got to the hospital and they opened the door and they're wheeling me off, there was uh, a bunch of people there, medical professionals waiting for me. They brought me in. Before I could blink, they had me hooked up to morphine and it, they must've jacked me up pretty good because, um, it took effect pretty quickly. They wheel me into a room and I, I don't know what were there, maybe 10, 15 people in there and they start cutting off my clothes. And I was like, wait, why are you cutting off my clothes? Everything's up here. And they said, well, we always, we have to make sure you could be cut somewhere and you don't realize it. And again, that made sense. And um, cutting off my clothes and um, while it's going on, like I said, I got the morphine and everything. So, um, you know, I'm not really in too much pain anymore. It really is just the shock of everything. And with that, a police officer comes to the head of the bed or the stretcher, whatever I was on at that point. I, I don't remember if they transferred me to a table or something, but he comes there and he, believe it or not, he shows me a mugshot. You know, the mugshot I keep talking about that all these cops had seen, including the two idiots on the subway with me and the idiot that asked if I was the perp or the Vic. He shows me the mugshot and he says, hey, is, um, 
is this the guy that did this to you? And I looked and I'm like, yeah, that's him. And he says, well, you're a hero. And I go, I'm not a hero. Why am I a hero? And he says, well, he killed four people last night. And I always say it. If you've heard me tell the story, you've heard me say it. That's the part of the movie where they kind of fade out from my face. And I just have this dumbfounded expression on my face. Because how do you answer that? Not the hero part. To this day, I don't believe I'm a hero. I will. I don't call myself a hero. Um, the whole subway hero thing that was uh, created by the media. And it's catchy. I mean, listen, it, it is. I'm not going to deny that. But I'm not going to call myself a hero. The, the, it was the part about him killing four people. How do you react to that? Um, so here's this guy who killed four people. And he's actually letting me in on the secret that he wants that I'm going to die. So he wanted to kill me, too. So it's like uh, to this day, I still don't know. I don't know how to react to that. But he says, yeah, he killed four people last night. So at least now I know that when he said I was going to die, he meant business. He wanted to, uh, he wanted to kill me. So things settle down. They get me, uh, they get me, I guess, uh, stabilized. And they bring me to a room. A regular, I don't think it was, it wasn't a room. I guess it was a room that kind of had curtains, separated by curtains. And I'm in there and um, doctors start coming in. There's a uh, detect, at least a detective and I think another, maybe two detectives. I, don't, I was going to say a detective and another detective, but I think there's two in there. Maybe not to start, but at some point there was. And um, cool guy. And uh, he says, um, you know, obviously, how you doing, whatever. And I said, good, you know, and um, doctors come in and they, um, <laughs> I remember, it, it had to be awkward for them to tell me, hey, listen, we got to uh, numb your head here. And when we put the needle in your head, it's going to hurt. <laughs> and I left now thinking about that because they're looking at the back of my head. Now, I didn't see pictures of the back of my head till a few days later when I went to testify before the grand jury. So I, to that, at that point, I didn't know what they were looking at. I, I had no idea, but here's this guy telling me, well, I got to numb your head and it's going to hurt when I put the needle in your head. And I was just like, do what you got to do, man. And, um, so they put it, you know, they stick me in the head and everything. And, um, I start to feel no pain again. Well, not in my head, you know? And I, I tell the detective, look, I got to call my wife. And he says, well, I'll call your wife. And I go, well, I don't think she's going to pick up the phone. We don't generally pick up the phone from callers we don't know, but go for it. So he calls her once. She doesn't pick up. He calls her again. She doesn't pick up. I go, hey, listen, give me my phone. I said, I'll call her. I said, I'll call her and get her on the phone and then you can talk to her. But let me call her because she's not going to pick up the phone. Now, even though this was early Saturday morning, she worked on Saturday mornings. Uh, she worked in a fitness facility. She did the books on Saturday mornings. So she's working with money. She's working with numbers. I generally left her alone. I wasn't going to bother her because she's doing pretty important work for the for the gym. So I call her and I said, hey, you know what's going on? This and that. And I go, listen, um, I just want to tell you there was an incident on, on the subway. I got stabbed a bunch of times. I'm in Bellevue Hospital. Now, if you're a guy out there, you might be saying, yeah, I got a weird sense of humor too. And I, I do have a weird sense of humor. I don't think it would approach something like that, but 
I have a weird sense of humor. And again, even for me, that would have been over the top to call her and say something like that. But we're at the table, let's say. And she goes, Joe, I'm busy. Come on, please. I'm busy. You know, I got work to do. I got, I'm doing this. And I, I get it. I get it. And I go, uh, she goes, I don't have time for this. Because again, if I'm her on the other end of the phone, yeah, I think I'm fucking around. So I try again, same thing. So I take a breath and I say, and listen, I said, slow down. I said, just do me a favor. I said, stop for a second. I said, there was an incident on the subway. I was stabbed a bunch of times. I'm okay, but I am in Bellevue Hospital. I'm not kidding. And that's where over the phone I can feel the life just leave her body. And she starts to scream. And uh, that's this is the toughest part for me, um, telling the story. Oh. She starts to scream, and everyone that is in the area where she used to do the books, it's not a very big area, so everyone's kind of in close quarters. And she starts screaming. And I'm telling her, calm down, calm down, please. I said, listen, I said, the number's going to call you that you don't know. That's the detective. Um, Just let him tell you what's going on, and then just get up here. So I hang up with her, and it's just, it's so hard to talk about it. It's, uh, I say all the time, like, I don't have a problem. I don't have a problem talking about the fight. I don't have a problem with discussing anything. But when it comes to, uh, my wife and my kids, that's the hard part. So, uh, so I say, all right, call my wife, tell her what's going on. Give her the details. Okay, perfect. So now the, the guys come in, the, the doctors come in and they're stitching me up. And they basically tell me, okay, so the wounds on your head, you're going to need stitches and staples. Now, I had heard of people getting staples before. Never got staples before. I barely had stitches. Um, so he says, your face, your arm, your thumb are going to get stitches. Your head is going to get stitches and staples. And then my knuckle, he goes, you're probably looking at a stitch or two. And I said, no, nah. I said, don't worry about that. I said, just leave it. It'll it's fine. He goes, yeah. He goes, I just wanted to tell you if you want it, we can do it. If not, no, it's just like a, it's a little bit deeper than a normal cut. I'm like, I'll just leave it. So my head's numb and they start, uh, stitching up my head. And it's very weird when you start getting staples in your head. And I, again, I didn't see the actual stapler, but I envisioned it like a staple gun. Now, when I was younger and I you would hang up posters in my room and pennants and stuff, um, a lot of times it was easier just to use a staple gun. I remember like to tink, to tink, to tink, to tink in my wall. There were staples everywhere. And that's really what it sounded like on my head. So again, I wasn't feeling the staples going into my head. I felt the pressure and I heard it and it was almost comical. Um, but obviously it wasn't, but it, it was almost comical. So. The guys at the hospital, with the exception of one guy, the plastic surgeon, he was a bit of a douche, but the, um, I remember there were three, um, there were three guys there that were great. One of them was from Texas. I remember having a conversation with him saying that if we were in Texas, Gelman would already be dead. 
Um, and again, I didn't know his name at that point, but I'm like, oh, if we were in Texas, that guy would be dead already. And he's like, yeah, damn right he would. Which I wish he was dead now, but he's not. But uh, we'll get to that. Then, uh, so the guy, the three guys were awesome. The doctors, uh, unbelievable. The doctors who tended to me at Bellevue Hospital were unbelievable. I wish there was a way that I could track them down and just say thank you. I mean, I guess I guess I could look into it. I, I say it all the time. Maybe this is a good time to look into it because I'm I'm furloughed. So maybe I maybe that's something I should do because I really, you know, they took really good care of me. Except for the plastic surgeon. Plastic surgeon comes in and um, he's like uh, something like, how much blood did you lose? I'm like, oh, I lost a lot of blood. Oh, I don't think you lost too much. And I said, were you there? And he goes, no, I don't, I don't think you lost too much. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> what the fuck, right? Like, are you this much of a douche all the time? But obviously I'd been through worse that day, so it wasn't even anything. So, um. He said, well, I'll stitch up your thumb and, and um, you might need plastic surgery. And I go, if it's just a cosmetic thing, I really don't care. If it's uh, something that's going to help me use my thumb, maybe it's something I consider. But if it's anything cosmetic, I'm not, I'm not going to be bothered with it. Okay, no problem. So the detective there, I say, hey, can you call my sister? My sister at the time, well, let's say right now I am very happy to say that my sister is a retired New York City police officer because of all the bullshit that they're dealing with now. Um, anyone that is a cop, now you have my blessings. I'm very happy my sister is retired, but at the time she was still working. And I said, could you call my sister? My sister's a cop. And he's like, oh, absolutely. So he calls my sister, I guess he gives him the details. And um, I guess, um, I don't remember if the detective called uh, my mother-in-law, you know, everyone on my, on Andrea's side, or if Andrea told him, I'm, I don't remember, but um, I know the detective called my sister. Obviously she filled in my mom and everything. My dad was living in, well, he still lives in Kansas. So obviously uh, I called him. I think I called him after the fact. Well, I know I called him after the fact. I don't remember if my sister or someone reached out to him before that, but I knew that uh, I wanted to call him to let him know that I was okay. Um, so, my, I believe that my side of the family got there first and, um, my sister came in, my mom came in and, um, so my sister was talking to the detectives and then she came in and talked to me and she was, you know, we were just bullshitting, you know, whatever. And then it hit me. I'm like, Hey, I said, you know, the, the cop called me likely. Does that, what does that mean? And my sister, the color left her face, she turned pale white. She goes, Joseph, what did you say? Now, my sister, picture my sister is a lot like when your parents call you by your full name. My sister never calls me Joseph, Joe. Everyone calls me Joe. And she goes, Joseph, what did you say? And I go, when I got on the stretcher, I passed out, but I could still hear everything. The cop, cop was talking to another cop. She called me likely. What does that mean? She goes, likely means likely to die. And again, that's the part where you're just sitting there and they focus on your face as they pull the camera away. And it's like, holy shit, they really were ready to watch me die. They didn't care. They got their guy. And I was just another victim. I was just, you know, like Humpty Dumpty. I had a great fall and, you know, fuck, he's gone. But look, we got our guy. It's incredible when I think about it. But when she told me that, I was like, yeah, that's what she said. Likely, likely to die. So I, uh, 
I told my sister, I said, listen, Andrea's driving up from Philadelphia. She's got the boys. Now, my boys at the time were 10 and 7, and uh, Andrea's driving up. And we don't drive in the city. I mean, I, I, I hate the city anyway. I hate driving in the city. My, Andrea doesn't drive in the city. So that was uh, extra anxiety for me that day. I said, can you please wait for them outside? And when they get here, just jump in the car and park it somewhere and let them come in. And yeah, yeah, of course, of course. I said, I'm cool. Just, you know, I'm really worried about them. And um, eventually, Andrea shows up with the boys. And again, I, I always um, always point this out because obviously at the time I didn't know this, but uh, Andrea told me that really the biggest thing that helped her because here are the three people closest to me in my life and they have no idea what they're walking into. And Andrea had to tell them what happened. And now these, again, they're, they're 10 years old and seven years old. How do you, how do you process that as a 10 year old and a seven year old that someone just tried to kill your father? I don't know. I don't know how you process that, but Andrea says that they were unbelievable on the ride up from Philadelphia, that they were the reason if she had any sense of normalcy or any sense of calm during that ride, it was because the 10-year-old and the 7-year-old were telling her, hey, listen, you spoke to dad. He sounded like he was okay. So, you know, don't worry about it. I'm sure everything's going to be okay. And, like, I'm so proud of them. I really am. Like, Jesus, they're 10 and 7, and they're reassuring my wife who, you know, like I said, they none of them had any idea what they were walking into. Now, fortunately, the uh, the only wound on the front of my face was the one under my eye. Everything else was in the side of the back of my head. So when Andrea got there with the boys and they opened the curtain to come in, first of all, as soon as I remember when they opened the curtain, I just smiled like I hadn't seen them in 20 years. And I think when I smiled that the combination of the smile and the fact that most of the damage was to my side, the side of my head and to the back of my head, and you couldn't see that right away. I think that kind of put everyone at ease and they came in and I hugged them and yeah, I was busted up. You know, I got the, uh, I got the stitches under my left eye. My left eye was black. I had blood in the whites of my eyes. It was all puffy and stuff, but you know, compared to the rest of my head, um, I was only slightly uglier than I normally am, but you know, I was just so happy, uh, so happy to see them. And like I said, I just got the biggest smile on my face when they walked in. And I, I think that took a little bit of, you know, if they were feeling any sort of anxiety, any sort of tension, I think that kind of eased their mind. And listen, I'm sure when they came to the bed, because everybody that came there, I believe was on my right side and the right side of my head is where I got kind of the half moon wound on my head. So they saw that and my head was, uh, you know, it, when I put my head on the pillow, uh, you know, there was a lot of swelling. It felt like someone had sewn rocks into my head between the skin and the skull. So I'm sure my head was all misshapen too, but, uh, I was happy to see them. They were happy to see me and, um, it was great. It was, uh, it was a hundred percent great as bad as things were, you know, two hours before that, whatever it was, it was everything right now was pretty good. I was with my family again. So that's all I was really concerned with. So after a while, it's, uh, 
you know, my mom, my sister, my mother-in-law, I believe my sister-in-law was there. Uh, I don't think my brother-in-law was there. Maybe he stayed with my nephew. I, again, I don't remember 100% as far as that stuff goes. Um, and my wife and my kids were there. There's a lot of people there. So eventually it was, he, um, we got to, he's got to rest. So everyone went home. Obviously I was going to be admitted. Um, everybody left. My, uh, kids went with, uh, my sister and my mom to my mom's house and Andrea stayed with me. So now they moved me into a room and like, you know, what do you say? Like, I just got bludgeoned, but I know I'm okay now. You know, and I'm just, like I said, I got stitches everywhere. I probably got 30-ish or so staples in addition to the stitches. And But you know what? I know I'm okay. I'm with my wife. So at the moment, everything's okay. And um, we're watching the TV. And you know, uh, let's just say 5 o'clock news, a couple of minutes before the 5 o'clock news comes on, they'll go, coming up at 5, and they'll do like a little blurb. So I forget what news that was that day. It could have been the five o'clock news. I have no idea. They said coming up, uh, Maxim Gelman, the 28 hour killing spree is uh, apprehended on a uh, subway today. Here are the details. And I look at Andrea, she looks at me and I go, okay, let's watch, see what they say. So the news starts and there's uh, several people up uh, on stage and there's a gentleman at the podium named uh michael bloomberg who was the mayor at the time next to him was police commissioner ray kelly and there were other people on there i don't know i don't know who they are who they were don't know and of course they're not going to show the whole press conference but mayor bloomberg said thanks to the swift action of new york city police officer terrence howell and his partner tamara taylor and with help from off-duty officer marcelo razzo Maxim Gelman was apprehended on an uptown number three train earlier this morning. And then they, the uh, anchors, whatever, they start talking. And I look at Andrea. Andrea looks at me and I go, huh, that's weird. But now keep in mind, I'm, I'm also still, I got to have the morphine in my system still. I have to, because I'm not feeling any pain right now. And again, I'm a few hours earlier, I was fighting for my life. So I don't know. I'm thinking to myself, did I hear that wrong? I don't know. And I look at her face because obviously at this point I had told her the story and she's pissed. And I said to her, just, you know, let it go. Let's just see what happens. You know, just, it's fine. Um, and then really, uh, the re- you know, I get dinner and she stays with me and you know, it wasn't the most restful sleep I ever had. I'll tell you that much. The pillow that I had, I'm sure it was a fine pillow, but based on the uh, situation with my head, like I said, it felt like someone had sewn rocks under the skin and on top of my skull. It was, uh, like I said, I've had better night's sleep, but it could have been worse because I was going to wake up the next day. And, uh, I wasn't so sure about that, you know, 12 hours earlier, let's say, but all in all, I guess I was, well, I know I was very fortunate. So we move on to Sunday 
and um, it was early in the morning. Uh, maybe not too early. Maybe I don't know, ten o'clock or so. And uh, the police had a had an officer stationed outside my door. I didn't know why. He would pop in, say hello, whatever. It seemed weird to me. It wasn't like I had to worry about anyone coming to get me, but whatever. And a reporter from the Daily News comes into my room and says, hey, is it okay if I chat with you a little bit about what happened yesterday? And I say, sure. So she says, um, you know, obviously she was very nice. How are you feeling? How's it, you know, how's it going? Whatever. And so I said, well, what do you want to know? And she goes, well, why don't you just tell me what happened from the beginning? Okay. And I start to tell her basically what I've told all of you. And she stops me at a certain point. She goes, wait, 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 wait. She goes, so you're the one who stopped him? And I said, yeah. And she goes, well, that's not what the police are saying. And I remember clear as day, I go, well, I don't know what they're saying, but this is what happened. And now listen, she's a reporter. Her eyes get real wide because now she's got the story. And she says, has anyone else spoken to you? And I go, no, you're the first. Can I have an exclusive? And I go, eh. I go, listen, I, you have a job to do. If other reporters are going to show up, they have a job to do. I don't really want to, I don't really want to say I have an exclusive with anyone. And she was cool. She's like, no, I understand. I understand. Just tell me what happened. And I go through the whole story. And now she's on, she's like, holy shit. You know, I hadn't spoken to anyone. She's the first one that's getting the story. So Thankfully, it happened when it did. It didn't happen again in 1985, where you had to wait till the later edition of the paper. She can go and write her article, and even though it won't be in print till the next day or later that day, if they even do that on the weekends, it's going to be on electronic media really quick. So she gets that story. I tell her what happened. And actually, when she said, that's not what the police are saying, and I said, I don't know what they're saying, but this is what happened. She pulled out the papers. She had a copy of the Daily News. She had a copy of the Post. And basically, it was about how the police were the heroes and that they saved my life and uh, how they caught this guy. And it was like larger than life. There was an article written in the Daily News um, by a pretty famous writer. I can't remember his name. Uh, he always seems to pop up on like crime shows and stuff like that, like documentaries. Um, and he wrote this glowing piece about how not only, I mean, just how heroic Terrence Howell was, because not only did he apprehend Maxim Gelman, he did it without shooting him, without, uh, whatchamacallit, getting his firearm. There's a term for it. Uh, oh, I guess unholstering his weapon without unholstering it. What a hero. It almost sounds too good to be true, but this article was written and for 24 hours, boy, oh boy, Terrence Howell was a toast of the city. What a fucking guy, right? So obviously that was fiction, but so this is the first article that comes out electronically. Now in between that article hitting the internet, a writer from the post came by and again, very nice, basically same thing. She was again surprised that this is what really happened because of what the official police statement was. She was surprised. Um, again, I told her, I said, listen, I just so you know, I spoke to a reporter from the Daily News already. She showed me the Daily News from today. She showed me the post from today. So I know what's been going on. So, but this is what really happened. Oh my God. Okay. So now she's gone. 
Well, no, actually, no. Let me correct myself. A nurse came in and kicked her out. And I'm like, what are you doing? And she goes, she can't be here. I go, but she's here with me. I'm. It's okay for her to be here. And she says, no, she's not allowed here. And I said, but she's in my room. I'm telling you it's okay for her to be here. And she goes, no, she's not allowed to be here. So I was like, I'm sorry. I said, if you want to wait, I'll talk to you downstairs. Because believe it or not, although I was bludgeoned and stabbed seven times Saturday morning, February 12th, I was discharged from the hospital Sunday afternoon, February 13th. Yep. But I told the writer, I said, hey, if uh, if you want to wait for me, I don't know when I'm getting dis- discharged, but I know it's soon. Um, wait for me downstairs. I'll talk to you downstairs. No, I think I have enough. Okay, perfect. Then my aunt and my cousin showed up, which was great. It was, uh, it was great to see them and, uh, chatted with them for a little bit. And they told me, Hey, there's a writer from the New York times downstairs. They would not let him up. And I'm like, what the fuck is going on here? I don't understand with these. They're preventing reporters from coming and talking to me. Um, why? if if i'm i'm the patient this happened to me i'm completely okay with having the media in here of course now i know why they didn't want the reporters to come up which is stupid because i wasn't going to be in the hospital forever i was eventually going to speak to the media and tell them what really happened but i guess at the time i guess they were saying well if we can delay this whatever but they were not letting these reporters in my room after the daily news report so I said, okay. I said, they're, I'm leaving soon. And, and they're like, what? And I go, yeah, they're discharging me today. I couldn't believe it. But uh, that's what happened. So my aunt and my cousin left. They got me ready to be discharged. Andrea and I went downstairs. I spoke to the writer from the Times. Again, very courteous. I, I'm going to say this now um, because the, I think the media now is a lot different than it was back then. The media treated me like gold. Um, especially the New York post, because after that first day, uh, the post was always the one paper who, I I don't want to say they kept tabs on me, but whenever there was something going on in regards to the case, they were always there. And the post is, they all treated me great. The post, the daily news, uh, New York times Newsday. Now remember I'm from, well, I'm from Queens. I lived on Long Island at the time I was living in Philadelphia and this happened in New York City. So Newsday didn't really jump on it. Um, when I got home a week later, they had left a message on my home voicemail. They never got in touch with me on my cell phone. So I guess they just went with the AP or whatever it was, the story that they wrote. Um, but I never heard from Newsday until then. And I called them back at the time, and it was a week later. And they go, listen, no, no offense, but in the news business this is kind of old news. I'm like, Oh, I completely understand. It was a week ago and I'm not, I won't take offense to it, but I wanted to at least call you back because you called me and no, they were great. You know, the meat, like I said, the media now, um, it seems like, uh, and I'm not talking about the individuals because I'm sure some individuals have an agenda, but, um, I think we can all point out, um, the agenda of different outlets and what their agenda is. But at the time, media was unbelievable to me. The media has always been good to me. There were maybe one or two articles that were kind of douchey. Um, but, uh, as a whole, the media was very good to me. So that concludes part one 
Uh, I'll pick up part two tomorrow and uh, I'll just continue where I left off. So part two will pick up uh, as I'm being discharged from the hospital and Andrea and I are driving back to Long Island. So uh, I hope you people enjoyed part one. Definitely stay tuned for part two tomorrow. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you.